0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, February second. I went the entire first day of February without calling it the dumb month. You did. It is the dumb month. Oh, okay, here we the go. The reason it's the dumb month the second is, day is why, Rev? Uh, because the R? Yeah, there not unnecessary not a necessary R? Yeah. And in southern lingo, I mean, we get accused of combining words, and economically speaking, February is a dumb month. <laughs> it doesn't need that other R in there. It needs to be F E B U A R. Why? <laughs> it's not February, right? Yeah, well apparently apparently it is. <laughs> good morning, sir. Hey, good morning. How are you? Uh so far so good. So still this the two of us. It is. Um yeah. if there's anybody who wants to be a producer of an early morning radio show, <laughs> uh call eight no don't, don't call eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. Do that if you want to rant about something Jeff said right. over the airways. And I want to look, look reach out to the business office for the other. We don't give callers official titles. Mm-hmm. Um, you give yourself titles, um, you're, you're, you know, you're such and such from such and such you're, you know, some of you disguise yourself, uh, for fear of revealing your identity and your workplace environment may not be as, um, hospitable if they find out you're calling into a conservative radio show. But, um, but I've labeled, I'm pretty good at, at names, Jeff is resident antagonist one. <laughs> yeah, I think he might. Agree, yeah. right? He's resident antagonist, antagonist one. one. The one thing we need Jeff to realize is for him to be most beneficial to the business model that is Wake Up Carolina. We need him calling in at about 7 or 7.30. We don't need him waiting until, but he's a Democrat. He probably sleeps a lot later than um than Republicans True. do. But we need him calling in earlier so the, uh, the, the multiple conservatives out there can take exception with whatever it is. Um, he chooses to say. It is a Thursday morning, eight four three six six reverend and I have this new arrangement. There's a glass and wall between us. He's in uh, the other, uh, what would that be? That's still a studio. Yeah, we call this the control room.
1: So I have the, the control board with the knobs and sliders and meters on it. Uh, we're actually running and producing the show. And you are in the, the talk studio.
0: I am in the studio conversion. The studio currently being converted into a... A um a multifaceted video slash audio studio. The studio, since uh, it was built by our owners at Community Broadcaster, made a big commitment to Wake Up Carolina. Thank you for that, owners. Um, but it's in the process of being converted. Rev and Stew. Anytime I say Rev and Stew, something major is going on mm-hmm. at Community Broadcasters in regards to engineering and production and whatnot. So Rev and Stew have been hard at work for about a uh, week and a half, maybe installing lights and sound equipment and video equipment i don't know there's been a lot of sound equipment more video equipment than anything but i can uh i can look around the studio and see one two three four sets of television lights one two three cameras hanging uh from the ceiling and we do have a hard launch date am i right can i disclose this are sure. you okay with it? Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, you texted me yesterday and said, you know, is February 20th okay with you to launch No Stoplights with Ken Arden? And I said, yeah, that's fine by me. So for you out there who have been uh, kind-hearted and sympathetic enough to hang around with us for um, several years and several episodes of Wake Up Carolina, there will be, um, I guess, a a kindred spirit in the, uh, in the podcast format. Um, I go back to what I've said. I got to speak today. At the uh, the Marion Mullins uh, Rotary Club, at um, you and I went last year. I think it spoke, and um, a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, I think you're too busy this year to go with me. And plus, I've got to go to um, I've got a i have got got I got this weird life. I got to leave there and go to North Myrtle Beach to gather with a group of Gamecock fans to talk about nil oh, and football and yeah. whatnot. I've gotten more involved in that than I care to mention, but it is what it is. <laughs> so uh um, and we'll come back to some Gamecock talk in a second. But go okay, ahead. so so I'll leave there. And go to um and go to North Myrtle Beach to meet with um some lifelong Gamecock supporters who aren't supporting enough. <laughs> we <laughs> and, got and this, what exactly does well, that we, mean? We, we got this new way to, to to contribute. It's called the NIL, the Name, Image, and Likeness uh, branding programs at uh, at these universities. And um, you're right, there's a big story about that that um has South Carolina front and center in the world of college football. But but at some point in time. I'm likely to say to a group in Marion slash Mullins today that I'm a college dropout from a town with no stoplight. I mean, it's kind of my, um, when I go to a Springsteen concert, there are two things I'm sure of, Rev. You know what? I, he's going to sing Born to Run, mm-hmm. and he's going to sing Thunder Road. Now, he may not sing Darlington County. He may not sing Tougher Than the Rest. He may not um, do but three house calls, so to speak. But he, at some point in time, is going to sing uh, Born to Run and Thunder Road. So you, you, much like Springsteen, to, have uh, have your signature. Well, I mean, the only difference is he sold the catalog that concludes Born to Run and Thunder Road for nearly six hundred million dollars. <laughs> um, I'm running a podcast on a hope and a prayer, <laughs> and I think you that's give a, it a shot. Yeah, hope and a prayer. That's um that's Bon Jovi song, right? There's <laughs> living, another New Jersey rocker living, living on a prayer. Th- th- there may some fate. There may be some fate in that rib. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it may be a little better than. Then a hope and a prayer. But thanks for the invite. I enjoyed doing that. But when I leave there, I got to go into North Myrtle Beach and gather with some um some fellow Gamecocks to see what we can do about um being a force to be reckoned with in the world of NIL. Rev sticks his head in the door yesterday, and it was National Signing Day, and he'd heard me. I think I went on the air uh Friday of last week or Monday of this week and said the Harbor kid is going to be a Gamecock, mm-hmm. the kid from Maryland that had narrowed it down to maryland michigan south carolina and oregon um and then i get word early yesterday morning during the show i get these texts from friends who could care less what i do in the morning they're, they're in places other than the pd they don't listen they don't understand why i get up so early to do what it is i do but one in particular sent me a text and said looks like it's turned oregon's way so when rev walks in the door i said we may have lost Harbor Mm -hmm. and Rev's like, come on, man. I mean, yeah, what's the deal there? So for about three and a half to four hours, there was this posturing, this jockeying for position uh, between South Carolina and Oregon for one of the top, about 10 football players in high school football. Um, Some have him rated as high as the number three prospect others. I've seen him as, you know, as low as number 19 or 20. Um, And these rating agencies, I don't know how they get to, he's the best high school player in high school football. Um, he's the 27th best yeah good luck with that he's good and he's good right I mean if you're a top 50 player in America you're an elite high school football player but um but but the Gamecocks felt good about it toward the end of last week and over the weekend um they basically took half of the athletics department to Maryland met with his family and um and they felt good when they left there and um and he had a trip scheduled to Oregon took the trip to Oregon and um may or may not have bumped into field night. And this is what freaks anybody out if you're a college football fan. If a player you're recruiting is going to Oregon, and there's a set, let's say he's a top 50 player in the nation. I'm not talking about the three-star lineman you're crossing your fingers at open, he works out of recruiting class. I'm talking about the five-star, the elite players in America. Imagine that kid leaving your campus, and you're feeling good about it, and he goes to Oregon. And you know they have what? I mean, they have the probably the biggest brand in all of athletics. I mean, name a bigger brand than Nike. The I Under think- Armour revenue number is about equal to Nike's marketing budget. I mean, Under Armour is the only company that has ever tried to go mano-a-mano with Nike. Adidas said thank you, but no thank you. Um, some of these other brands, Reebok, I'm thinking, uh, you know, th- there are a lot of other companies that have that have tried to go there. Under Armour is the only company that has said You know, we think you have too much of the market share, and we're going after it. But, and it's worked in some way. Some of their dry fit, sweat, wicking clothing has done okay, but they're, you know, the sneakers is where the money is, and they've never made it in, I mean, just no no, no impact at all in in Nike's model. So the kid goes to Oregon, and I I don't know this to be true. I mean, a lot of this is rumor speculation, but it's been reported to me that Nike made him an offer. And I'm thinking and about and Phil Knight,
1: well he's worth about 50 billion or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah,
0: somewhere between 50 and 100 billion dollars depending on what the stock share <laughs> oh. price of, uh, of Nike is. So, but, so but in the world of NIL, that's a But but think about right? this, it's not just the the money, it's the it's the Nike brand. Sure. I mean, I mean, if I'm Phil Knight and I'm competing with Michigan, South Carolina and Maryland for a football player, you know what I say? Who can turn you into Michael Jordan? I mean who, Michael Jordan owns his own golf course. I mean, I get the millions here, and I get an NFL contract. I, I found it, Nike. Who can turn you into Michael Jordan? There's only one school on your list that can turn you into Michael Jordan, and it ain't the Gamecocks, and it ain't the Terrapins, and with all due respect, it ain't Big Blue in Michigan. It's Oregon. And I'm just thinking about, wow. I mean, if you're an impressionable, and everybody is at 18. I mean, nobody's that mature at 18. From what I've gathered, he's more mature than most. And, and the reason is his father is an engineer at NASA. His mom is a, a professional lady. I think she's a pharmacist. So they're not the typical high school senior looking for a free ride. They just aren't. Um, but, but I'm gathering, don't know this to be true, speculating, and I think most of you out there would be surprised by any of this, that Nike made him a life-changing offer. Why? Because they can. <laughs> you know, I don't know if it was verbatim, we'll turn you to Michael Jordan, but if I'm Phil not, that's what I tell him. I mean, if I'm speaking on behalf of the Oregon Ducks football program, that's what I tell him. The point I'm trying to make is, in this new NIL era, if you are recruiting a player and he's visiting, um, and he's visiting Oregon, pray to the God of your choice. Because <laughs> there's a pretty good chance they're going to make him a better offer than you ever can. I gather that when the kid, um, when Oregon made its pitch, as, as comfortable as they were in their premonition, they felt really good about South Carolina. They have the entire time. And most Gamecock fans, uh, n- not on the inside, but somewhat um, reading more about the program than average, they felt, okay, we're in the run. He got a good chance to land this kid. And the only thing I can tell you, Rev, he, he would be a, a freakish talent similar to Clowney. I mean, he's not Deshaun Watson. He's not Trevor Lawrence because he doesn't play quarterback. Uh, he's, a, he's a wide receiver slash edge rusher slash tight end. I think Shane made it clear yesterday. We don't have any interest in his hand in the ground blocking a, de- an off, a, a defensive end. I mean, he's not going to play tight end. He may rush the passer a down or two, but but by and large, he's going to be a wide receiver. DJ Metcalf, uh, Randy Moss, Julio Jones, he's a big kid, 6'5, 225, or 30. But his 60-yard, I mean, his 60-meter speed was the exact same speed of the SEC championship-winning um, time. In other words, a high school senior, 6'5", 230, ran the exact same 60-meter speed as the person who won the SEC track and field championships. So, um, so it was an eventful day yesterday. At 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he announces, and, and I'll tell you, it's kind of unusual, but, but I think he might have changed his mind two or three times yesterday. I think it went back from Oregon. Um, you and I have a mutual friend who's kept up with the recruiting a long, long time. And I was communicating with him yesterday. He was trying to figure out what I knew. And I was like, I don't know anything, man. I know I felt good, you know, when I went to bed that night as a Gamecock fan about getting one of the top players in the country. I don't feel anywhere near as good right now as I did. Um, If we're in a war with Nike, I'm afraid we're going to lose that war because we don't have a Phil Knight. Clemson doesn't have a Phil Knight. Who does have a Phil Knight of the brand that is Nike? But from what I'm gathering, Shane, you know, had one last sales pitch and said, look, if it's about money, good luck. I mean, if it's about money, that there's nothing we can do. I mean, we've done all we know to do in the era of NIL. We've um, we've kind of emptied the tank on our end. We'd love to have you here as part of our team and culture and program and tradition and, and you know, the history of building something that we can all look back on and say, I was at the early stage. I mean, that's what you sell at South Carolina. If you at Clemson, you sell a potential national championship. I mean, that's what you do. You know, you want to see our trophy case? Here it is. I mean, that that speaks for itself. South Carolina doesn't have that. Can't sell that. So they got the sale this um, you know, vision of the future and what it can be. But from what I'm gathering, Coach Beamer reached out to the family and said, "Look, if it's about money. Wish you well. Nothing but good luck. He's a good kid. but enjoyed, enjoyed getting to know you guys, but um but but somewhere down the line, the family, you know, had a, had to a come to Jesus so to speak and said, you know, um the gamecocks can't offer what Oregon can, but that's where you want to be. I mean, it's obvious to us that's where you're most comfortable. You like the coaching staff. You like the school. You like what Beamer's about. And I think that at the end of the day, I don't want to say the culture won out. It's hard to argue that culture in South Carolina wins out. The potential culture. You know, somebody's trying to build something that has never been built here, and we'll see if it works or not. Um, Once again, if you're Clemson, I mean, Dabo can say, you want to be a part of our culture? What is your culture? Walk into the trophy room. Let me show you what our culture is about. And that speaks speaks for for itself. No question about it. Uh, that you know the Gamecocks came into a trophy room and there's a um you know there's a trophy <laughs> over there. What is that? That's the um that's the SEC championship game where Auburn boat raced you you know with Cam Newton. Oh yeah, there's a Heisman over. You see where I'm headed? I mean they, you know they, there's not a lot of um pizzazz or sizzle in that uh, in that Gamecock trophy room. But um but you know wanting to be a part of building something that will eventually have a culture you can all be proud of was something I think Beamer has really. Um, I'll tell you this, and I, and I say this with with all due respect. Shane Beamer reminds me of a young Dabo Sweeney. You've said that. I mean, it, 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 everything. A lot. Well, I mean, it's, it's every day's the fourth of July. It's um, it's Happy Camp USA. It's there's greatness in these teams. And when Dabo first first started doing that rev, I chuckled. I said it's silly. I mean, that's nonsense. The things he says and the things he does and the antics surrounding the program. They'll regret the day they hired that insurance salesman. You know who slept with his mom? Well, the joke's on me and a lot of other people who felt as I did. And I've I've gone on some Clemson message boards recently because I just want to keep the temperature of the other of the other team. There's two posters in particular. I don't think they're uh, posers. I mean, I don't think they're Gamecocks. You know, both teams do that. I mean, they are there are Tiger fans that come on Gamecock Central. And then try to say, "Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Gamecock fan." No, you're right. not. You, you you're, can, you're a troll. Of course, they are. They're trolls. That's the that's the word I was looking for there. But um, but there's a couple of Clemson posters uh, on there. I think it's Tiger Nets, the one I go on, and they say, um, "You know, I'm telling you, man, this guy reminds me a lot of the way Dabo built his program. You know, every day is the fourth of July. Um, it's the most optimistic, positive, uplifting perspective." You could possibly have.
1: Okay, so now from the Gamecock perspective, again, I don't have to have you put on your Gamecock glasses to answer this, um, but from your perspective, what does this, you know, in a long line of some pretty good recruiting successes uh, during this season, what does this mean? And if we're putting a bow on it now, what do you think?
0: Well, I think yesterday when he announced on ESPN2 that he was coming to South Carolina over Oregon and Michigan, those were pretty prominent programs. I mean it's it's 5 million dollars worth of positive advertising. It increases the likelihood that the 2024 class could be the best class in football the Gamecocks have ever had. It's positive momentum, it's forward energy, it's um you know you, you when you recruit a top 15, a top 10 player in the country, you lose more of those than you win because the kids got it air down to three or four schools. So there's a 25% chance. You're not going to win half those battles. You just aren't I mean, you're going to lose the majority of those announcements. Somebody at Oregon goes, damn, you know, we thought we had him. You know, we thought we turned him at the last minute. But I think when you land a top 10 player, when you overachieve in a football season, as they did against Tennessee and Clemson, and then had a fairly depleted roster and competed with Notre Dame the way way they did, you end up with a top 15 recruiting class that includes – a signing day bonus of a top ten player in the country. I mean that that's very positive. I mean that's extremely positive. The twenty four class. I'll get to the weeds with you. The twenty four class sets up to be the best class South Carolina has ever had in the history of its football program. Um, they got to get sixty percent of the top fifteen players on their board, and that's not unusual. I mean that you know, and I think Beamer's a beast on the trail. I mean, I think Shane Beamer's a, I mean, you know, how good a football coach is Shane Beamer? I don't know. How good a coach is Dabo Sweeney? I mean, really, Clemson fans, I mean, do you trust Dabo Sweeney to schematically design, you know, offenses and defenses to be successful? I don't think they do. But you know he's the CEO of your program. He can go out and market that Paul. He can brand that Paul. He can get his mom, dad, and kid. This is a better place for your kid than that place is. And I think Shane does that about as well as anybody in college football today. Now, now once again, when they walk in the trophy room in Alabama and they walk in the trophy room at Georgia, they walk in the trophy room at Clemson, you've got to overcome that challenge. But what does it mean? I think it's the biggest day in Shane Beamer's tenure as coach of South Carolina because he went head-to-head as a second-year coach of a, of a fairly average program and nailed it. And I think, once again, what's going on in Columbia? You know what's happening in South Carolina? I thought they sucked two years ago. Well, they did two years ago. What have they got going on now? I want to take a little harder look at you know what it is people are so enthusiastic about at South Carolina, and that goes back to the you know the 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 the, the optimism here, you go, the optimism that Shane Beamer <laughs> has bred into the end um, into the program eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break, back in just a few eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Yesterday, I want to go back to a couple of days ago the conversation we had on homelessness. I don't want to recap or revisit the entirety of the conversation but but we had a lady call in that um very politely said can I make my point you know will, will will you um will will you give me a second to express myself as I see as I see fit and um and out of that came kind of a um a text debate that I had with listeners and friends about um the situation with homelessness um is the is the free market answer to do nothing, let it sort itself out, or is the free is the answer a psychiatrist for every person that has been deemed homeless because of mental illness? Well, you know the answer is neither. I mean, the answer is not to let the homeless just deal with being homeless the best way they know how. This country historically has not shown the ability to do that. I think Reagan famously said, "I'm for cutting Medicaid, but are we for watching people die on the sidewalk?" You know, the, the, there's some balance to most answers that involve, um, you know, the, the convergence of life and politics in general. So when you look at the free market, I mean, if it's a if it's a true capitalist economy and people end up on the bad side of life and they up homeless and destitute as a result of it. Well, that's their problem. I mean, they've got to figure that out. They had as, as good a chance to succeed as I've had to succeed. Well, all of a sudden addiction and mental illness become, you know, um, part of the argument or debate. But, but the answer is certainly not a psychiatrist for everyone who has ever been deemed, you know, homeless as a result of mental illness or addiction. And, and it kind of led, it spurred this, you know, what, what are we doing? I mean, what, what are we doing locally to address homelessness in our community? And I've had two elected officials agree to come on next week. And the reason it was next week is they think they know the facts, but they want to make sure. And I kind of applaud that. Don't come on loose and fast and say things that may or may not be true, find out exactly where the county stands, where the city stands, where law enforcement stands, and how can we make it better? One of the ingredients of the debate that we discussed, are we a place that makes it easy to exist as a homeless person? Should we be a place that makes it easy to exist as a homeless person? Is there purse strings attached to the number of homeless people in a community? In other words, are 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 there demographic research done that says um, Sumter has a higher percentage of homeless than the state on average, therefore funding, they secure government funding at a higher rate. I mean, believe it or not, I'll tell you before, money's the answer. Now what's the question? So when we head down the road, but but I've got a couple of people in local government that have agreed to come on next week to tell me um, some of their opinions about, I'm not saying these are solutions, but their opinions of elected officials who could make a difference if they if they choose to. Can we make panhandling illegal? Can the government tell a business like Walmart that panhandlers aren't allowed to stand on your property? I mean, is that aren't we kind of sort of conservative around here? So if Walmart doesn't have a problem with it, why should the government? I mean, here's the yin and yang. Here comes the um, the socialist libertarian again, or the libertarian socialist. I want government to tell Walmart what to do about, you know, its homeless problem. But but I don't want government to do anything else. That's all I want government to do today because I got harassed by a homeless person who I think is an addict in a parking lot of a big box retailer. Now, I don't want the government to do a damn thing else to them. But today, I got harassed, and I want government to make sure that doesn't happen again. That's where we get ourselves in these conflicting positions and sure. situations um now tomorrow if it, if you get that that's Dave Becker's problem I won't limit <laughs> government I don't want government to do anything uh, to Walmart but I think there's there's kind of an interesting angle there um I'm a customer of a big box I mean I'm just hypothetically saying this uh, I go to the big box I get arrested. I want I want something done but I want the big box to be liberated of government involvement government intrusion in, in theory philosophically uh, that's what I believe, but yeah, I got a couple of people that are willing to come on next week and um, and kind of take on the subject or topic of uh, of homelessness. Now, I'll tell you this: before they come on, they agree that we have a problem. I uh, the reason they reached out, they agree that something has to be done about the safety factor and how we feel um, living our lives and experiencing our, our you know our shopping experiences, our whatever it is. I mean, wherever you interact and whatever you do during the course of your day. Um, those unsafe moments you have when you are confronted by something you didn't expect. And sometimes it's a homeless person that you don't know has a mental illness. You don't know is an addict, or you don't know just a lazy bum, you know, wanting more and more and more of your money. So I'll, I will confirm tomorrow what day they're coming on. But uh, a couple of people will come on and represent local government on, um, on what they think needs to be done. Do we have a plan? I mean, maybe we here have inspired, or instigated, or initiated some sort of plan that was not pressing, was not, um, you know. D- does the local leadership believe we have a problem? Okay, do we with do we acknowledge
1: there is a problem? Well, I mean, I don't it know if we be can fixed. or not. I mean,
0: but 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 once again, okay, think of this. I, I you know the, the Florence County has a you know a um a majority Republican government. The city of Florence, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I know many of these people. I find many of these people to be very fair-minded and decent. But they're Democrats. But I mean, they're Democrats for a reason. That their philosophy in life relation to government or related to government is very different than mine. I didn't say I'm right every time. I don't buy that. I don't think I'm right every single time. Uh, I have a strong opinion about a lot of things, but, but I'm not stupid. I mean, I know that I could be wrong on a lot of these issues. But when you've got a city council, a city government dominated by Democrats, the likelihood of them agreeing with, uh, you know, the host of this show and the majority of its listeners is probably slim to none. I mean, that's just a, that, that's kind of the philosophical reality. There's a reason there's a D beside their name. They think government has a job. Is government's job to run the homeless out of town or is government's job to make life more bearable and manageable and productive for for the homeless? I mean, that's kind of a philosophical yin and yang and um and difference speaking of the free market talk about the free market homelessness or a psychiatrist for every person uh, or every person i am beginning to begin I, I, i'm looking at a lot of data about the economy and i told rev this morning it's it's, it's concerning to me i mean the fed yesterday i was gonna save this for the seven o'clock hour we may redo it at the eight o'clock hour but the fed yesterday raised its benchmark rate by one quarter of one percent um but they gave very little indication about what they believe is happening in regards to inflation. It's some interesting comments. They're in it. I'll use some Fed lingo. They're in the hiking cycle. I mean, they, you know, we had a problem with inflation. We printed all this money, all this money made its way into the economy. The Fed, uh, believe it or not, didn't believe or didn't think that there would be this much inflation. I, I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't. I don't have any idea how politicians and, uh, and policymakers and, you know, um, People in control of our monetary policy couldn't believe or imagine that that was the case, but but the market says, and I this is a bit weedy. The market says that the target range is somewhere between four and a half to four point seven five percent. I mean that's what they built the um, that's what they built into the. You always say that's already priced into the market. Well, the things I'm reading from reliable sources, and I'm talking about. Um, some some opinions on Bloomberg or CNBC that aren't out of the mainstream. They aren't radical. I mean, these folks have got it right more than they've gotten it wrong. They don't get it right every time, of course they don't. If they did, they wouldn't share that information with the public. It would be uh, proprietary. They'd get the billions of dollars. But um, but it's the eighth increase, and the increases began in March of 2022. So we're nearly a year into this hiking cycle. They've had eight increases. The markets say that the Fed will pump the brakes, so to speak, when the target gets to somewhere, or excuse me, the um, the the benchmark rate gets somewhere between 4.5%, 4.75%. Yesterday, a couple of the analysts said this thing could go to 525 and we're beginning to see the market react to that, you know, the, these unknowns, and once again, a buyer and a seller, bull and a bear. I mean, there are people who believe the market's going down, people who believe the market.
1: And there's conflicting
0: headlines all over the place. Well, me, and, but, but the headlines, I don't think, are as informed. I mean, it, it's newsy. You know what I mean? That They say these things. But you got to read some of this stuff. And when you – I mean, I read what Jerome Powell said yesterday, and it's interesting. One thing he said, I'll quote, Inflation data received over the past three months show a welcome reduction in the monthly pace of increases. Now, if you go back and read Jerome Powell's comments since March or since February of 2022, well, March of 2022, when they started the hiking cycle, he's always said that we've got to see decreases in inflation. We've got to see a decline of inflation. Well, now it seems to me, and I'm reading between the lines here, that the slowdown, the reduction of monthly increase is good enough for Jerome Powell. He's getting a lot of pressure from Wall Street. I mean, if you go back and look, the, uh, the Dow reached its high January 4, 2022 at 36799 A year later, it's thirty five oh ninety two. And when we're in this deleveraging cycle, I don't know any upside for the market. Now, now, Reggie will be with us in a bit, and he'll talk about whatever it is he chooses to talk about. But, but I, you know, when I look at, okay, where does the market go from here? I think it's become so dependent on monetary policy. Uh, you know, when, when you look at Bed Bath & Beyond, I mean, who didn't know that place was going broke? I mean, really, I mean, who didn't know that? That's a zombie company. The only reason Bed Bath & Beyond was able to survive for as long as it did was restructuring debt. I mean, that, it was all about leverage. I mean, that they could figure it out as long as they could borrow money at three-quarter of 1% or a percent and a half or two, two and a half percent. I mean, they're borrowing at LIBOR. I mean, they've got some cash on hand. They've got a lot of debt. They missed a debt payment yesterday. If I'm not mistaken, to JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley, and I ain't talking about, you know, the thousand dollar house payment. I'm talking about a two hundred and fifty million dollar interest payment that they missed because they don't have the capital. So so when you look at these zombie companies that were allowed to exist and aren't existing or finding serious, serious problems today, I'll give you another example. FedEx is laying off ten percent of its professional staff. The reason they see a decline in shipment over the next twenty-four months. Well, I mean, how can FedEx or UPS in the middle of e-commerce and this explosion of online shopping, I mean, how can FedEx and UPS adjust their workforce when they're in one of the fastest-growing sectors of the economy? All about leverage, all about borrowing money. And and when these big companies borrow money, hold on to that. There, there's more there. I, I swore I was not going to talk about this until after, <laughs> after 7 o'clock, but there's a lot of there there. 843 937 take a break back in a minute. 843 I kind of want to go over this a couple of times. We'll do it in the morning cycle pre, uh, pre the eight o'clock hour. And then we'll do it again sometime after eight. Cause I think it's very worthy of considering what is out there. Um, I mean, you hear a lot of opinion about, you know, but people are motivated by a lot of different things. Very few are motivated in telling you the truth, but I mean, there's always an agenda of some of these pundits and some of these experts on i mean why would cnbc say the market looks like it has a lot of rough days ahead i mean the cnbc's business model is encouraging people to make investment in firms and uh and increase the per, you know the percentage of your money in a in a stock portfolio but that's cnbc's business so why would you expect them to be somewhat of a um a safe harbor for for you know kind of allied interest so to speak but but we're, we're transitioning and i think this is the macro and this is get i mean you can get lost in this if you aren't careful um even i can get lost um the, the <laughs> whoa <laughs> well I mean, know that the u.s has transitioned from a decade of quantitative easing to a decade of quantitative tightening and when the quantitative tightening begins happening i'll give you an example in the feds notes yesterday um i've said it over and over to this morning I'll give you an example um the Fed has stopped the bond buying. I mean, they're not asset buying as they were. Um, they aren't just raising uh, rates. They have been reducing the holdings it has in its bond portfolio. Um, about 450 billion dollars less since. Remember, we talked about the 45 billion that that began with quantitative tightening. Now it's up to 95 billion. Well, in total. Since June of last year, they've reduced, you know, their um their balance sheet by four hundred and forty five billion dollars. Um and they have a target this month of ninety five billion. When the bond matures, they don't repurchase the bond. I mean that that's kind of the um that it rolls off of their balance sheet each month after um instead of reinvesting. So instead of reinvesting the money back in, in the bond market, they just, you know, that ninety five million comes off ninety five billion comes off their books. So um, so they believe the Fed believes, and here we go in the weeds now, you got to stick with me for a second. The Fed believes and said yesterday that their balance sheet reduction was the equivalent of about two additional points of interest rate hikes. So we're kind of getting the double whammy. We're getting the increase in interest rates, and we're getting a decrease of their financing of the economy. I mean that, that and that's what it is. I mean, to some degree, it is their. Um, assistant, they would be a, um, it'd be like an equity line. I mean, it's not in my mortgage, but but it's nice to have. So so the Fed's balance sheet was about $11 trillion. Well, about $10 trillion. Financing of the economy. That's well, that, that, that's, that's my language now. Know, be careful, I'm inti- not an economist. But it's interesting. And, and that's the way I'm looking at it. They have basically subsidized or financed certain aspects of the economy. The balance sheet today at the Fed is still eight point four trillion dollars. I mean imagine that. But but it's about a half trillion less than it was. It was about nine trillion, is down to about eight and a half trillion 8.4 trillion But 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 they've got this terminal rate. And the I mean the, the 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 Fed open market committee talks about this terminal rate. That is when they believe that their policy, their interest rate is sufficiently restrictive Hold on to that. we got to take another break back in just a few. So in the past year, you've had the Fed raise rates eight times. You've had them reduce their balance sheet by $445 billion. They say, and take it for what it's worth, they say the balance sheet reduction is the equivalent of an, uh, an additional 2% of interest um, increase. In other words, they've raised the rate X number of, of points, but they believe by reducing the balance sheet, the it's, it's almost like another additional rate hike so to speak and that's the san francisco fed some of that some of what they said about you got to pay close attention to these people i mean they, they it, it's every now and then the san francisco fed will say something um in contrast to the atlanta fed or the new york fed or the philadelphia um fed but but the committee members all have indicated and once again we get to the weeds here and it gets real confusing that this um they see the terminal rate. That's their terminology, not mine. The terminal rate is being somewhere around where we are today, four and a half, four point seven five percent 4.75%. They have always believed that was sufficiently restrictive until now. And it seems to me that when Powell says, and I want to go back to what he said because I don't put words in, I mean, he's a powerful man. I mean, what he says matters. Remember the old EF Hutton ads? I mean, when EF Hutton speaks, everyone Listens, Powell said yesterday, inflation data received over the past three months show a welcome reduction in the monthly pace of increases. In other words, there has been no decline in inflation, just a slowdown of the increase in inflation. So if they had this, you know, this restrictive policy and the number was uh, what they call the terminal rate that they say is sufficiently restrictive, but it's not stopped inflation. I mean, we've had eight rate increases. We've had um, half a trillion dollars of liquidity kind of taken out of the economy via some of the um, not reinvesting in the bond backs, And we're still dealing with increasing inflation. We made a great and calamitous mistake by not understanding how much stimulus $6.3 trillion would lead to. I mean, that's what we did, guys. We can We can parse words... We can argue about where the money went. This was good money. That was bad money. This was necessary money. That was unnecessary um, spending. The reality is before COVID and after COVID, there is $6.3 trillion that exists somewhere in our economy that didn't exist prior to COVID. I mean, that, that's a big number. I mean, our economy is worth, what, $22, 23000000000000 trillion. I mean, that's the value of our economy. I mean McCarthy said yesterday I've got an article here we'll get to. I mean our debt is greater than the the net value of our GDP. I mean our GDP is somewhere in the neighborhood. Now I understand the, the rollover effect. I've heard this argument. It's a little bit like modern monetary theory. What what the economy could be worth. You know the the offshoot from our economic activity. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 8436610937 first caller of the morning. I don't know the last time we went an hour without a phone call but apparently the host of this show needs to be more inspiring early in the morning we didn't have one rev actually checked the phones to make sure spectrum wasn't uh, asleep at the switch <laughs> and everything was working okay uh, we've just not done much to inspire any uh any interaction first thing this morning well when you were reading the what the fed minutes
1: and what powell said from yesterday i mean what is there to comment on well i mean but, you were I mean, uh, you were
0: you're telling me something I was listening because I didn't know. But it gets tutorial in nature. Right. I mean, it really does. It sounds like I'm lecturing to people about the nuances of the Fed. I do know a lot more about the Fed today than I ever have because I read it and I try to understand it. And when I says that, when I say they finance the economy, I think that's what they've done. I think quantitative easing, a decade of quantitative easing, will. will I mean, the, the 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 distortion of the free market by what we've done is something we're not going to get out of easily. It's not a get out of jail free card. This isn't Monopoly and play money. I mean this is real situational, you know, finance and, and and the Fed I think overreacted and it led to enormous macroeconomic stimulus. We we know that all the inflation we've dealt with. Um, I went to a grocery store and, and my wife gave me a long list. And I mean I don't buy groceries. I mean we pick up things. I don't normally buy groceries but i bought groceries this day this week and i was i mean i knew what i had the bug you get it normally it's 125 or 30 dollars i mean that's normally what it is it's 175 or 80 dollars but there was a 50 dollars premium on about the same thing once again on that in in that rare moment when my wife says uh you mind doing this for me and i say, of course i will and i get her list every time i've ever gotten her list it's been about 125 dollars and it was about one hundred and eighty dollars this time, and I'm like, "Wow, you know, inflation's real. Not just not just what the price of the pump, but but that buggy, half buggy of um of groceries and goodies and what it costs. So so yes, I mean I think there's been a distortion to the market. I think quantitative easing and a decade of quantitative easing has created um, far too much leverage in the economy. I'll give you another example. Um, well, let's go to the phone. I want to be polite for somebody, respectful of somebody's time. Somebody's there. It's Breeze. Good morning mighty
2: decent of you, kid. I don't know how you managed to talk an hour and fifteen minutes without well, anybody helping you out. That's amazing. But, but you know what? You know what, kid you know, we're kind of dumb, buddy. Uh, I mean, don't. I mean, we're we're thinking that the people that intentionally and, I, and there's no doubt, in my mind it was intentionally intentionally destroyed the economy. They intentionally rigged the stock market. They did all these things. They intentionally broke something. So the same people that intentionally broke something, we expect them to intentionally fix it for us. I mean that's silly. I mean you know they raise interest rates, but they're not cutting spending, and, and if they want to spend the money, um, then I mean they will either have to tax us or print more money, which they'll do all of that. And none of those things are good. I mean, I mean what? They're, they're, what is this? There's no solution, actually. You know, I mean, it's just kind of – I think they are just got to try to slow it down so we'll behave a little better. But I think the end game is, again, it's just going to be that new world order. I think that they want all of these economies to crash, and then they build them back the way they want them. Well, we don't have any rights, or we don't have any money. We don't own nothing. We're all just happy to be alive. You know, they just got to take care of us. I don't think they have any real intent. Of actually doing the right thing that needs to be done to fix this, I think you can tell them in about thirty minutes what they need to do, but they wouldn't do it. So, I mean, I mean, I guess it's fun radio, but you really can almost have this conversation in thirty seconds. We know what they need to do, but they ain't gonna do it. They know what they need to do, but they ain't gonna do it because they don't want to do it. I mean. You think? What you think? I mean, does that
0: make sense? Yeah. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, some of the I mean, some of the answers are pretty easy. Stop printing money. Start spending. Stop spending money you don't have. Um, but but have we? I mean, here's the fundamental question, Breeze. Have we broken it to the point that we can't fix it? I mean, monetary policy and the Federal Reserve have always been a part. Well, not always. Since we uh, you know since we created the Fed, I mean, it's always been responsible for inflation, monetary policy in the American economy. But you can break anything. I mean, you you can go to an extreme where it's unrepairable. It's not, I mean, you can't fix it after it's, there's been this much damage done to it. And, and once again, Rev says, I try to freak people. I'm not trying to freak anybody out. I'll give you a couple of examples here. So um, why does this matter to me? I don't know, but it does. And once again, I'm not an economist. Take what I say with a grain of salt. Uh, famously said, a college dropout from a town with no Stoplight. Take what I say for what it's worth. But I went back and looked at, um, car payment data. And I went back and looked at car payment data from 2008, nine and 10, the, the, the great financial meltdown, the financial um, calamity that was caused by subprime lending. And, you know, uh, the housing market was kind of the, um, the epicenter of all the financial turmoil in that time. um, when you read consumer report, that uh, there's a section of the Fed report called consumer credit report. It's kind of a um, it's a subdivision of the entire report. And in that consumer credit report, um, it reveals a very dramatic increase in the amount of new car loans. The new car loans have increased by more than two thousand dollars in two quarters in 2022. In other words, the, the, the car loan prior to COVID was about $38,000. Today, it's 40, about 41000 actually $40,855. So we've seen a big increase in that. Um, that's inflation. That's because the Fed. I mean, how can it get that much more expensive to build a car from one quarter to the next if not for some of the government actions or reactions to COVID? Um, here's here's the, the data I'm looking for. So, so, I've seen a pretty significant increase in the price of a car loan. The, the, the amount of money a consumer is borrowing to purchase whatever car it is you choose um, to drive. But you go back to January of 09, and we had a, a, a delinquency rate 60 day behind. I mean, the 60 day behind number in January of '09 was 5.04%. The historical average is 3%. I mean, historically, they're about 3% of all car loans delinquent, not in default, but delinquent 60 days behind, um, never had a car repossessed. I don't know what it's like. I don't know how long you get. I guess the self-financing would be different than, you know, conventionally, um, or traditionally borrowing money from a, uh, from a, a bank or a credit union, or even the, um, the automobile companies on some of these, uh, or did on some of these, uh, financial instruments, but, um, but when I see the amount of money that people are borrowing has increased by two thousand dollars, a little better than nearly three thousand dollars, and I and I see you know what the um you know what the delinquency rate on auto loans is today, Rev? I mean once again, January of 09 That's about as bad as it got. Mm-hmm. It was five point zero four percent. It's historically three percent, two and a half to three percent. You know what it is today? Six point one percent. So the auto delinquency rate today, the auto loan delinquency rate today is a point higher than it was when the world blew up but we hadn't been quantitative easing for a decade there was not 6.3 trillion dollars in existence there's less than that now because we've taken a half trillion off the books by not you know reinvesting in the bond markets buying um securities buying uh, you know what once again what i said distorted the economy in such a profound way um here's another interesting nugget of information um and i go back to 2009 see i believe this I believe the economy was sick, but the housing market had pneumonia. In other words, the housing market was so in such dire straits that it made everything else around it sick. I think we have a credit bubble that makes the housing bubble look like, dare I say, baby crap. Oh. Um, May, and and it's hard to explain because once again it it gets weedy. I mean, it gets real confusing when you go down this road. But but there the, there's no doubt the United States has transitioned from a decade of quantitative easing from 2009 until about 2000 when did COVID started. 20. Well, so so we went from 09 to 2020 in a um. Well, with the ved quantitative easing printing money injecting money liquidity in the economy uh we did it far too long we kept interest rates far too cheap and i think there's a significant price all of us are going to have to pay to get back to some sense of normal and, and what the economy's worth once again um in january of last year the dow was at 36,747.99. today it's at 34,092. how does the dow recover if we remain um in the quantitative tightening mode that we are now um th- there's bloomberg data out i know we got to take a break we will there's bloomberg data showing now that companies with liabilities exceeding 50 million dollars filing for bankruptcy top 20 this month or last month january for the first time since when you ready january of 2010 yeah I mean, it's normally 6, 8, 4, three, two, one, nine, uh, four three, six. All of a sudden, it looks like the number of companies with liabilities exceeding $50 million are declaring bankruptcy in a similar fashion to 2008, 9, and 10. Take a break. Back in a few. 843 is our number. Thursday morning, 7.30, about that time in the morning, we get a call from our good friend, and great television, senior national editor, White House correspondent, John Decker. Today is no different. John, good morning. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. How are you doing today? We're normally talking about a scandal or, or, or some interpretation, a violation of, of, of code yeah. or law. But we're getting back to good old-fashioned politics. We're horse trading a bit with Republicans and Democrats on the debt ceiling. Kevin McCarthy, newly installed Speaker of the House, says, I'll sit down with the President, listen to what his proposals are, if he'll take into consideration some of the spending cuts we're recommending. Where are we? Is that a proper intro? And where are we, John?
3: Well, where we are
4: is that, Both uh, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy met yesterday in the Oval Office for a little over an hour. And we heard from Kevin McCarthy after that meeting, came out, spoke to reporters, and he said, there's some common ground. Those are his words uh, as it relates to this particular issue, uh, this issue of extending the debt ceiling. Uh, And I don't know what that common ground is, uh, given that we know going into the meeting, the two sides were very far apart. The White House saying there's no negotiations. Uh, there's nothing to be given up. And Kevin McCarthy's saying, look, I'm for extending the debt ceiling, but there needs to be uh, some concessions from the White House, namely cutting federal spending. Uh, so I don't know what that common ground is, but that's what Kevin McCarthy said uh, was reached yesterday during that hour-long conversation. But,
0: John, you're you're an old hand at Washington. I'm somewhat informed. I mean, to me, if you're going to address spending, you have to put entitlements on the table And there seems to be no interest of either party in doing that.
4: Well, Kevin McCarthy says that entitlements are not on the table. We're talking about Social Security and Medicare. Uh, However, there are some uh, within the Republican Party, his conference, that say everything should be on the table. Defense budget, entitlements, everything. Uh, And so I think that Kevin McCarthy is going to find himself under a lot of pressure from members of his own party, to uh, go beyond what he said. And he's already uh, indicated uh, what he's indicated. And I I don't know how you go back on that. It's difficult to walk back what you've already said in a negotiation. And he's already said that uh, Social Security and Medicare will not be discussed, will not be on the table as it relates to cuts. Uh, in the federal budget.
0: So, how do they negotiate from here? I mean, if, if if one side believes that there was some common ground, the other says no, there is not. Where, where do we? What, what do you expect to happen next in this? Uh, in this, I don't know, mediation process.
4: Well, it's a five-month-long conversation because that's when we come confront the possibility of defaulting on our debt. So, this is the first of many conversations. What we heard yesterday was this idea floated by the White House is uh, the idea that. The debt limit will be extended, uh, and then there will be a separate track, a separate discussion as it relates to cuts in federal spending. That's what the White House put out there. That's what they're floating out there. I don't know if that will be accepted by Kevin McCarthy. Uh, He needs to go back to his conference and say, look, this is what I extracted from the White House. This is a win that I got for us, and I don't know if he considers that to be a win if you have these two separate tracks of conversation.
0: Last uh, topic I want to touch on, John, thank you for your time, is Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, announced her, or not informally, but it it was leaked, that she's going to be a candidate for president of the United States, running against her former boss, Donald Trump. They're the only two announced candidates, despite Haley not being formally announced. Um, What sort of splash did that make inside the Beltway?
4: Well, it makes a splash because now you have Donald Trump with some competition uh, effective February the 15th, when she makes it formal that she's uh, going to run for the Republican nomination. You also have the news coming out this week that uh, your uh, Senator Tim Scott is going to travel to Iowa. So there's two South Carolinians uh, that are thinking about running for the White House. Uh, So to me, it makes a a splash in the sense that you have someone who worked for uh, Donald Trump, was in his cabinet, Uh, and now is challenging him for the Republican nomination. And uh, clearly, I think that she is the first of what will be quite a few Republicans who challenge Donald Trump for the nomination. I don't know the timing of it, uh, but, you know, she's a credible candidate. I don't think anybody challenges that. She's got the domestic uh, policy experience serving as the governor of South Carolina. She's got the foreign policy experience serving as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. So I think she's a formidable candidate, and we'll see where she goes you know, how she can sort of put together that path to winning the Republican nomination. I don't see it uh, personally, but uh, this is what she wants to
0: pursue. Yeah, and I don't see it either. Um, John, Representative George Santos has made a splash in a very negative way. Um, really created a problem for the Republicans within their caucus. W- what do we expect to happen to Representative Santos?
4: Well, he's already recused himself, as you know, from serving on any congressional committees. I think he faced a lot of pressure to do just that. So I don't know what he does with his time, with his day, given that he's not doing uh, anything as it relates to that portion of a uh, a member of Congress's job. Uh, What's next? There are investigations that are ongoing. And I've said before, I I don't think he uh, will likely be in Congress for the full two-year term. Uh, Reason being is I think he's going to be indicted, indicted on federal charges related to Uh, campaign finance violations, and all the mess uh, as it relates to that. And it really is a mess. So many instances, I believe, of violations of federal law in terms of the money that he raised, how he raised it, how it was spent in his congressional run. That was successful, uh, but I think there's a a lot of funny business going on in terms of how he raised all of that
0: money. Well explained. John, thank you for your time, sir. Thank you. Have a great day, Ken. Bye-bye. That's Gray Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker. Why do we always mention Gray? They own WMBF, the NBC affiliate in Myrtle Beach, which is our media partner, as well as WIS, the NBC and affiliate in Columbia, home of the... Fighting Gamecocks. Fighting Gamecocks. There you go. Come, Rev. Now, I mean, we're sitting in a little bit different positions yeah. here. Well, I was just um, waiting to see if
1: you were going to say it. Yeah. I wanted you uh, to <laughs> well, say,
0: thanks. so l- let's go back to the, to the stories. I mean, I'm trying to merge these stories and I don't think I'm doing a good job. I'm going to get real frustrated with myself when the points I'm trying to make aren't being uh, properly articulated or well, or well received. Um, I believe that we're going to see a lot of car repossessions, mean, um, the data shows me, uh, once again, the delinquency rate, 60 days behind on the car loan. The car loan is a little better than two grand more, um, in, in total now, the, the number of people who are 60 days behind on their car payment is higher as a percentage than in January of '09. And that is telling us? That's telling me a lot that there's, there's, we, we got ourselves over leveraged again. I'm mean, going to imagine that. We make credit to available. We allow people to borrow too much money. Um, here's what I think happened, Rev. You ready? You ready for the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip? Let's hear it. Somebody making 40 grand a year and their wife making 35 grand a year. Well, let's say, and in fairness, um, I don't want to be perceived as um, male dominant. Let's say the female's making 50 and the man's making 40. There's, so they're making 90 grand between them. They qualified for all this cash, these stimulus bonuses, these. Um, I mean, everybody in the world got checks. Not everybody, but a lot of working people got checks. Um, I know a man and woman who do okay. They're much younger than I. They do okay. They did the math and they got about $12,000 in extra money from the federal government. I mean, it just shows up. You know, there's some program that they benefit from. They get a check. There's another program they benefit. They get another check. They ended up with about 11 grand well, I mean, if you've got eleven more thousand dollars than you had via your income, why wouldn't you borrow two thousand dollars more to buy a car? So so I think the, the consumer is stretched because they uh, the stimulus ran out. Remember Jamie Dimon said that, you know, JP Morgan, it looks like the consumer is going to spend all that excess capital by October of last year. So let's say October, let's say November, December, got Christmas comes along. And, and I think people really believed that the stimulus tree would give benefit forever and and you know I'm getting an extra 11 grand so I'm not making 90 as a family I'm making a hundred as a family. I got an extra 10 11, twelve thousand dollars a year coming in and you kind of adjust your lifestyle accordingly. Financial discipline is hard. I mean it's the, the minority of people are disciplined financially the majority make mistakes myself included. we, we all do things. Uh, money-related that we scratch our heads and say, what was I thinking when I did that? So I think the average consumer is in a bad place. I mean, I really believe that. I think the um, so some of the payment data shows this. Some of the income tracking shows this. The layoff numbers, we're beginning to see a big uptick. I don't know if you saw this or not. PayPal's announced laying off 2,000 people. All that. FedEx is announcing a cutback of 10% of its what they call administrative personnel. And then you go to the uh, to to the macro uh, of the U.S. transitioning from a quantitative easing decade to an year of quantitative tightening. And that is, we're told, where the Fed will remain to keep dealing with inflation. Um, so, So you're going to have this period of deleveraging amongst highly leveraged companies. There is no telling, Reb, how many companies are zombie companies. And by that, I mean there, there is no telling how many companies out there are existing and, and surviving only because of cheap money, only because of being able to borrow money at such a, uh, I guess if you borrow a, pe- a premium price. But, but I think you're going to see, I mean, I think Bad Bath & Beyond was a zombie company. I think you're going to see, I mean, I, I told you before the break, or before John came on the air, the Bloomberg data shows that companies with $50 million in liabilities, Pretty substantial company. I mean, they didn't Fortune 100, but that's a pretty substantial um, enterprise. If you've got $50 million in liabilities, I mean, that, that's a pretty big company. 20 of those announced bankruptcies in January of 2023. The last time 20 announced was December of 2009. I'm sorry, January of 2010. I mean, you see, I mean, it, 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 we're, 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 we're changing the way we finance the economy. Not only have we raised rates, we're taking liquidity out of the economy. When you take that liquidity out of the economy, the consumer has less bargaining power or less buying power. When the consumer has less buying power, the, the bloated companies and industries that have lived off the leverage cycling or the, 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 you know, the leveraging economy, it's kind of a double whammy. It's a perfect storm. Consumer has less money. The companies owe more money and the finance cost gets more expensive for those companies who own that money. And when 20 businesses declare bankruptcy with liabilities north of $50 million, and that's the first time it happened since 09, that's gotta be a pretty telling signal of things to come. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Morning, Mike. All right. Good morning. Uh, I think people just
5: enjoyed your lecture too much, Ken, and uh, they, they They were mesmerized once again by your voice, and they they just neglected call.
0: I detect a bit of sarcasm, but thank you for the compliments <laughs>
5: No, I enjoy your uh, your show immensely, but uh, there's a couple I, I got a couple of questions for you. Uh, first of all, where uh, this santos, if he uh, gets uh, if he gets imprisoned, Can he serve Congress while in prison? Will they put him on work release or will uh, the governor of New York uh, appoint a replacement or will they have a special election? I don't know the
0: answer. And I don't know the answer to that either. I don't know. Can a member of Congress serve while in prison? Um, uh, I I don't know. That's kind of an interesting. I mean, I'll tell you one of the weirdest things about the House you don't have to be a member to be speaker. So if you don't have to be a member of the House to become Speaker of the House, it would stand to reason that, you know, being imprisoned is probably not a disqualifier from being a member of Congress. That's interesting. I'll try to get an answer to that, Mike. Anything else? All right.
5: Uh, well, uh, I, uh, third, I, I cannot express uh, my, my frustration at listening to these people. Uh, try, the world is a complicated place, and it changes constantly. And uh, we're in a period of radical change, and I don't know where where that goes, what happens with us. But there are there's a tendency, even when people come up with direct solutions, like if the boat's sinking, the first thing you do is you you patch the hole in the boat or get the pumps going to pump the water out, or both. But uh and then you worry about who poked the hole in the bottom of the boat but later on i think that they want to complicate this thing about education it, it just struck me as uh your so your first solution to ameliorate the educational situation was to um provide competition between the schools that is uh i i think that was brilliant it was insightful it was profound But people want to complicate it and say, well, the parents aren't doing this and they're not doing that. Well, those are things we can work on after we get competition in the schools whether we can uh, retrain parents or motivate parents to uh, help their children and to instill in their children a kind of work ethic and uh, and to behave in schools, and we have to, we need a method for taking care of it. Those are all details that need to be worked out, and they're hard to do. But no. the first thing is to. Uh, get some competition in school. The other thing is the same thing with the border situation. That border situation is going to cost us a trillion dollars a year in lost revenue and paid out benefits to illegal aliens that aren't even citizens of this country. And that is going to contribute to our bankruptcy situation where we just go, I I don't think we can uh, survive that kind of thing for long.
0: Well, you're talking about education. Thank you, Mike, for the call. 843-661-0937. Take a break. I'll come back because I think DeSantis, I mean, if he runs for president, the the reforms he's instituted in Florida regarding public education will be a large part of his platform. How many of you voters would vote for a candidate who made as his priority reforming public education? 843-661-0937. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Short segment here. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there.
1: Charles and Lamar. Morning, Charles.
6: Good morning. Two things. First of all, Santos, Congress would expel him. You wouldn't have to worry about him anymore. And, um, and Kathy Hochul would probably report it, re- uh, re- appoint a Democrat to replace him. And we'd lose the seat. But that happens. You were talking about car loans this morning, 38000 to 41,000 in a quarter. Well, that's not the whole story because during that quarter interest rates on a car loan at my credit union went from 1.99 to 5.74. So that $38,000 loan for 60 months at 1.99 is 666 a month. But the 41,000 for 60 months at 5.74 is 788 a month. So that same car is $122 a month more. That's 18% more. That's $7,300 more for the same damn car two months later. Thanks, Joe. You did,
0: you did, you did the math, didn't you, <laughs> Didn't you, Charles? Spoken like someone who's been in the automobile business uh, for a good bit of his life. Mm-hmm. The number that I paid most attention to and the number that got my attention was the the January 09 number of 60-day delinquencies being 5.04%, the historical average somewhere between 25 and, and 3%, and the number today is 6.1%. So the number of people who are 60 days behind on their car payment today, and I think Charles just showed you the math, and the reason that number is increasing is 6.1%, that's a scary number to me. I mean, that's the average American. That's not a hedge fund manager. That's not a venture capitalist. That's not a private equity guy. I mean, they're concerned about FedEx laying off and PayPal laying off and, you know, where the economy goes from here. I'm talking about Joe Blow financing a car and paying, a, you know, 18% more or whatever it was, Charles said, 120 some odd dollars a month from one quarter to the next. The exact same car is 120 or 30 or $40 more from one quarter to the next. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning. Morning.
7: Yeah, if you remember back in the 2000, 2000, 2008, the average interest rate was between 6 and 9%. And the reason vehicles started going up so much is they cut the interest rate to zero. So how, you know, the car companies were giving cars out, and that's why you've got all these bad loans now but they were you know running them out the door but the price of the car was going up two three four thousand dollars a year i've got a f-150 of 2016 that they want to at the height of this thing they wanted to damn near give me what i paid for it in 16 to give it back to them so they could resell it so when you've got no interest rate, you got to make money somehow. So they just add the price of the truck or car or whatever to it. But the things I look at is the manufacturing and the labor participation rate. You know, the government got all these figures you can look at. The labor participation rate before the pandemic was a little over 67%. Now it's 632 manufacturing has dropped about four well, and a half percent.
0: Joe, we've we got to take a break. But but the argument is, I mean, it, it's, it, it, the, I mean it, it's not an argument, but if I wanted to be theoretical and hypothetical, I, I could say everything post-2009 has been make-believe. Nothing has been real since the, the passing of TARP. And the bailing out of the banks. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Go to the phone. Someone's there. Nick in Lexington. Good morning, Nick.
2: Good morning, uh, Ken. You've given all the data points for what's going on. I feel like I feel like you know the uh, people are behind on their payments because groceries went up for two. I'm assuming you have a family of two now at the 50 bucks maybe a week so how you gotta decide you're gonna
0: get groceries or you're gonna make the car payment it comes down to simple math it really does thank you neil appreciate that yeah i mean i'm trying to play smart boy here for a second or two looking at data points and bloomberg and some of the fed reporting but yeah but it's as simple as what neil just said i mean if if my wife and i buy groceries once a week and it costs us 125 or 30 bucks and it's 175 or 80 bucks that's $50 a week that we don't have to do something else with. That's a, a meal, you know, out. That's, a, um, uh, that, that's an increase in car payment. I mean, that's a, there, there are a lot of things. And, and I, I just think we've underestimated, guys. And, I, and I'll stop trying to be complicated and, and play Mr. Sophisticate on finance. I think we goofed it all up the day we bailed the banks out. I think we broke capitalism during that period of time, and we've tolerated... the 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 complete and total governmental distortion of capital markets and the capital economy in a way that we never imagined we would and we kind of liked it I mean the financialization of the economy um, yeah it's harder for the working class but when you look at the financialization of the economy I've read a lot about I mean more than you care to believe about the financialization of the economy we complain about student debt but somebody's making a lot of money on student debt so you've got these colliding forces. You've got the family with a kid in college who can't believe they're having to borrow that much money to educate their kid in a way the world or the country says has to. Um, he has to have this education to be uh, successful. She has to have this degree to be, um, you know, compensated accordingly or compensated, you know, in a in a favorable sort of way. Well, that debt's owned by somebody. And that debt is unforgivable in bankruptcy. I mean, you know, So so the financialization of the economy has not been good for the average American working family. But it's been real good for people who own the debt and make money off the interest on the debt. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937, second half of the show. We've talked about a lot of different things. Kind of a slow-moving show uh, this morning. fast movie yesterday, not quite as much. I'm not having my Celsius. Yet once I get my Celsius, <laughs> we'll get up and rolling. Then things will and, uh, start moving. Uh, yeah, faster. We'll, we'll, we'll move at warp <laughs> speed. No question. No question about it. You've talked a lot about
1: you know the Fed and interest rates and the economy. So as we look forward to this
0: year, um, I mean, what are you saying? Do you, you think we're in for a rough year? There the, are just some ominous signs to me, Rev. But they're, they're so, there are a lot of people in America today that, that we take seriously that we shouldn't. Because they intentionally mislead for profit. There's a lot of people that have a lot at stake in regards to the metrics of the economy. And if I'm the guy or I'm the group of people responsible for creating all the distortion in the market, am I going to fall on the sword and say we screwed it up? Wow, how bad did we do? Clay Travis said something interesting to me a week or so ago when he was asked about, you remember the sports side he had to outkick and he sold it to Fox Sports? I mean, sure. he sold it for, you know, multiple millions of dollars and made him a wealthy, a wealthy man. And I mean, no secret, he's a competitor to Bongino, who we have on our on our um, 12 to 3 slot. Kind of a um, when Limbaugh died, you, you knew there was going to be a hotly contested, you know, competition between hosts during that period of time. But Clay Travis said about OutKick, he said the reason OutKick became so popular, he was the only sports media willing to say the WNBA sucks and Black Lives Matter has no business being written at the end of each court of an NBA game. I mean, he said things that were against the the grain. It was against the, the the influential voices and forces within sports media. Well, when you consume media, when you consume information, most of us are busy. And most of us don't sit down and say, okay, what is that person, what is Steve Leesman on CNBC really up to? What is Mike Bloomberg, who owns Bloomberg, really up to? What is Kevin Bass, who appears on CNBC, really up to? Well, I, I when he example. says these
1: things, I, I, you know, I just read headlines a lot, and you sometimes say, well, that's you know, that's just the surface, and you're reading those sort of things. But when I see headlines, I think it was this week where Michael Burry,
0: Big Short, Michael Burry says sell, and Jim Cramer says buy. What well, I mean, Cramer has to sell buy. Kramer's contract says, Jim, no matter how ominous the clouds are, everything's got to be okay. I mean, that's what we pay you to do. We pay you to say everything okay, is okay. Now, here's the, here's the question. Did we break it in 2008? Because we've not lived with any practical sense of reality since. As Joe said, you go to the to, to the Fed rates prior to 08, when the world blew up. And remember, Bar- Barney Frank said nothing to see here. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are perfectly fine. Well. The housing market is chugging along. Uh, the the house reflects the American dream. Well, there's a lot of people who benefit when that narrative is, you know, mainstream and accepted. And and you know, next thing you know, a few people say, like Michael Burry of The Big Short says, something's goofed up here. I mean, something's something's out of sorts here. And, and what we've done in the media since then, Rev, and in the gathering of information, disseminating of information, not even the media, but I'm just talking about the bits and pieces that you hear. And you wonder what to believe. And you say, okay, this person sounds credible, but what are they motivated by? What, what is their agenda? Uh, ultimately, who pays their bills? Well, we did a montage on this show a year ago, brought to you by Pfizer. I've gone to six or eight or ten websites this morning, Three have had ads, banner ads at the top, Pfizer. I mean, do I really believe that CNBC is giving me the whole story when at the top of the page there's a banner ad that says Pfizer? I mean, why, why, would, why wouldn't I be suspicious of what they're saying in regards to any nugget of information? And, and the media has turned into a propaganda machine. Who do they propagandize for? Well, I mean, the left is their natural inclination, but, but if, a, um, if a right-wing company was willing to write a big enough check, they'd sell their soul to that. Of course they would. And, and we've got a distorted market because we've got the distortion of information. And Jim Cramer knows everything's not okay. Jim Cramer knows that interest rates have no business being near zero for 15 years. I mean, Cramer's a smart guy. He understands finance. He's highly educated and in tune to that world. But Kramer's existence and compensation requires him to say good things about where we are, and and some of the judgments the Fed has made, so some of what Wall Street has done. Well, you got to understand it in its totality and its complexity in it. No, I mean we we screwed it up in two thousand nine, and we don't know how to fix it. And now we're in a you know kind of a um we're increasing rates eight times since what a year. March of last year is when we began. It's February of this year. So in 11 months, we've had eight rate increases. Um, the market was 36799 Today, it's 34092 How does the market regain momentum? I don't know. I mean, the consumers tapped out. How do we know that? We know that because car loans or historic uh, You know, delinquent rates. Um, I think the homeownership reality. I mean I don't think the housing market is as sick as it was in 2008, but the credit markets are. we've got a credit bubble. We've lived in a leveraged economy since the world blew up in 2008, and we don't really know how to deleverage. And every time we start down the road of deleveraging, by that I mean raising rates, um, not doing quantitative easing but rather quantitative tightening, and all that means quantitative easing means I'm putting liquidity into the economy. You know that's going to create forward momentum. about the velocity of money. There are economic theories that are debated about how much you know. How much does this amount of money created out of thin air, when 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 injected into the economy, create what GDP does that lead to? So so we, I mean, there there are a lot of economic theories out there, but but in, in reality, we're transitioning from a a decade, really longer than that. Of easy money policy, quantitative easing, cheap interest rates to a raising rate environment with quantitative tightening. And we believe there's a soft landing to be had? I mean, we believe there could be a mild recession. I mean, I'm reading now that by the end of the year, they expected the Fed to lower rates again. And I just think we've broken the model of capitalism. And the only way we've been able to get away with it is to print money we don't have, to issue debt. What we shouldn't be issuing, and the Fed to create fiat currency by the debt out of money they don't have. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet today. I mean, despite taking about a half trillion off of their books, it's still eight and a half trillion dollars. You know what the Fed's balance sheet was before 2008? Less than a trillion, somewhere between three and four hundred billion dollars. That's kind of where it stayed. Guess what has been since then? Never south of five trillion. Normally closer to ten trillion. But I mean, it's it's a false economy. It's not real. And Jim Cramer knows it's not real. But if Cramer comes on CNBC and says, guys, you know, we really screwed up in '08 when we did these crazy things in reaction to a, um, a financial fiasco that was in way. I get it. I mean, I understand it. It was unprecedented. But why did we get in that problem? So, so here's what the government decided to do, Rev. The problem created by lending too much money to people who couldn't pay it back. The answer was borrow more money. I mean that that was in essence the answer. I mean the government borrowed more money to stop gap or fill in some of the um, some of the excess debt that the country couldn't consume. And I'm talking about the country we we the people and, and for 10 or 12 or 15 years we basically done kind of a duplicate of that year after year after year and when Jim Cramer who knows a lot more about this than I do tries to tell you that, yeah, there's some little problems over here, a problem or two over there. No, we have $31 trillion of debt. Kevin McCarthy said yesterday after meeting with the president, our economy is not worth as much as our federal debt. We're upside down. Charles was talking about a car payment and the price of a car being in the automobile business for as long as he was. So you know the old saying, upside down. I mean, I owe $20,000 on a car that's worth 15000 I owe $400,000 on a home that's worth 350000 Our country's financial st- financial situation is that. And I understand, well, I mean, it's governmental accounting, Ken. You know, it's, um, it's some of the uh, unfunded lie. But there's a lot of language that we use to try and trick ourselves. But at the end of the day, we, we have leveraged ourselves to a place that I don't think there's a get-out-of-jail-free card. But I, mean, I simply don't. And I don't see anything other than a series of deep, deep recessions. If we are going to attempt to restore some financial sanity back into our government's finances. Now, now what does that look like? I don't have any idea. I mean, we've always said, what does the tipping? once we get to the tipping point, what does that look like? You don't know. I don't know. Nobody does. But when Jim Cramer, says everything's okay except for a little problem over here or a little problem over there that's just fundamentally dishonest and he's paid to be dishonest and a lot of people in America believe what Jim Cramer say Jim Cramer says because he has a show on MSNBC excuse me a show on CNBC and he's made a lot of money on Wall Street 8436610937 let's go to the phone Rujan and Darlington good morning Good morning gentlemen good morning good morning, good morning.
8: It's it's kind of like uh, <laughs> well I've said it before when when the newspaper puts out the uh, man bites your dog, well, what they're talking about is a man biting a hot dog. But they don't tell you the whole story until you've read and went through five paragraphs and see oh he he bit a hot dog. And so it's it's kind of like you get you get all worked up and everything and you, and you realize you've been duped. But the, the 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 car industry is I think the car industry. Is going to take a big hit. If it's not going to be on the manufacturer's end. It's going to be on the dealership end. Uh, banks, are, I think the banks are getting ready to tighten up really, really tight. And a lot of, a lot of these smaller, uh, dealerships and then some big ones are going to wind up being in a situation where they can't do anything. Because when you pull a plan, of, when you pull a plan a car and you got to pay that interest on that car, and you can't sell that car because you're so, so into it, it's going to be a big problem. So I don't know who's going to bail them out. Uh, and the prices on a used car are so ridiculous. Uh, when I went to buy my last vehicle, I went in there with a certain amount of money in my pocket, and I told them, hey, this is what I'm going to pay for it. And they told me no. And I'm like, I'm looking at the value of the vehicle, Um uh, um, with Kelly Blue Book, and they're they're trying to sell it to me for five thousand dollars more than what the value of the thing is. Uh, so I kept my money in my pocket and walked away. So this is going to be very interesting. A lot of these dealerships are stuck with uh, with vehicles on their lots, so they 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 can't even sell them at auction now. So and then you, you pair that with people that that are sixty days or, or almost in repo status, it's going to be very interesting. Very interesting. And you know, I think you're right. We had it for. Not just one recession, but a series of recessions because of what we've done in
0: the past. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate it. See, and I think we're headed to a lost decade. I mean, I think the, the, the punishment for the sins of our past, the financial sins, I'm talking. I'm not talking about culture and societal and education. I'm talking about the amount of money we've allowed ourselves to become indebted to. Once again, and think, think about this. Now you're freaking me out well, I mean, Let's go back to the reality. Okay, the reality is that the government decided that it was going to spend money it didn't have. The Fed decided, somebody with authority, somebody who can execute and make decisions on behalf of the American people. So to fund some of the wonderful programs the government deems appropriate and mandatory, they... They get about, what, $4.6 trillion in revenue. That's more than that now. I mean, the number's off the chart. How much revenue comes into the government, but how much comes out? I mean, it's still a trillion dollars upside down annually. But let's go all the way back to the beginning. Um, in the beginning, you know, we decided as a nation that we were not going to say no to anything. And Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, defense spending, uh, interest on debt, infrastructure, education— politicians like saying yes it's easy to get reelected if you tell everybody yes i can it's hard to get elected if you say no i can't philip lowe j jordan mike Rickenbaugh, i know this because i've spent time in columbia you know what they'll do this week they'll tell somebody making a request for appropriation no Lowe in particular he sits on the ways and means philip will have um group after group interest after interest Government agency after government agency make request of the ways and means for X number of dollars. Lowe and team will decide what the priorities are, how much money they have, and what they can allocate. Go to Washington. Somebody walks in Russell Fry's office. Somebody walks in Tim Scott's office. A military contractor walks in Lindsey Graham's office. They have the ability to never say no. Why can they not say no? Why don't they have to say no? Lowe's got to say no. Jordan's got to say, no, Rick and Bob has to say, no balance budget amendment, can't spend money. You don't have, you get on 95 and you leave Columbia and you get to Washington and it's just a different world and politicians have become very comfortable in not having to tell anybody no, because the fed says, if you guys spend money, you don't have, you can count on us to print money. We don't have to buy the debt. To cover the, the the money that you know you spent that you don't have, I mean it's counterfeiting. I mean it, it's counter it's legalized counterfeiting money and it's fiat currency. Well, when you when you print all of this money to to basically absorb all this debt, it distorts supply and demand in a real and major and profound way. So it's it's politics The the political body. But by the nature of wanting to say yes to get reelected has allowed our country to become $31 trillion in debt. If you put anybody in a room with a U.S. senator and get them to be honest and on the record, I mean they'll never do that because there's too much to lose. They know Medicare is unsustainable. They know Social Security is unsustainable. They know there's no money in a trust fund. They know it's somewhat of a Ponzi scheme. I'm not trying to be provocative here. It's somewhat of a Ponzi scheme. Is it a full-fledged Ponzi scheme? Uh, probably not, because the government's in charge and running it. I mean, it's not a criminal enterprise. But if the government was not in charge, it would be looked at no differently than Bernie Madoff. The way the government funds Social Security today is no different than what Bernie Madoff did. But it's got the full faith, faith and credit of the federal government as its, you know, backstop, as its stamp of approval. We'll take a break. We'll be back. In just a few moments the one tried and truism in american economics or government for that matter or the relation between government and and the economy when when the government creates or or in inflation is the result of and and you know this but let's remind ourselves when aggregate demand exceeds aggregate supply we're going to have inflation right so what we did, Rev, during COVID, in our infinite wisdom and, and you know, um, communal brilliance, we constrained production and supplied more liquidity. And, and we, I mean, think of this, guys. I mean, we, we, we injected about $6 trillion in new money. I mean, I'm rounding off here. About $6 trillion in new liquidity. And we can go to the, to the CARES Act, the, um, the American Rescue Plan. I mean, there, there were about six or eight bills, I think mean, you know a couple of hundred billion here, a couple of hundred billion there before you know it, you got a trillion bucks. But there's about six trillion dollars of stimulus that we allocated in, in trying to help keep the economy afloat. Well, that that you, at the same time that we're supplying the economy with more money, we're constraining production. So how do you not believe that you're going to get demand or supply and demand so out of out of kilter and ballots? You know, the businesses couldn't operate. They couldn't build their products. Uh, the supply chains were broken. We, we found out how dependent we become on China. So, so all of a sudden, we're producing 30% less goods, and there's 30% more money chasing that 30% fewer goods. And we believe we can put that genie back in the bottle in a year? I mean, really? We, we think we can unwind a balance sheet of nearly $9 trillion, $6 trillion of new liquidity. We think we can take, you know, um, $100 billion a month out of the economy and six months down the road we're lowering rates again? See, that's the appetite. That's what Jim Cramer says is headed our way. It's lunacy. I mean, it's insane. How do we not believe that a year of quantitative, excuse me, a decade of quantitative easing, a dec- decade of um, basically 0% interest rates, how do we think we can fix that with a year of quantitative tightening? I mean, that's what CNBC's telling us. That's what Bloomberg's trying to lead you to believe. But you've got some honest brokers out there. I mean, there's a, um, I mean, this guy would never be on, on, um, on CNBC or Bloomberg because he'd scare him to death. He'd tell the truth. But there's a guy named, um, I've, I read a lot of what he says, a guy named Damian Schlob. He is the co chair of the restructuring group at a law firm um, that, that has communication with Bloomberg. law firm's name is Davis Polk and Wardell. I mean, they do a lot of restructuring, debt restructuring for business. You want to know what he said about two weeks ago? I'll quote him. You ready? From a broader market perspective, it's pretty simple. We have a market field with companies that have historically high leverage, thanks to the easy money policies of the past decade, and not insignificant portion of that debt is floating rates. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's a floating rate. Uh, if I'm bed, bath, and beyond, and I'm borrowing money to meet my debt, say I'm making a 3%, 4% overall margin, I'm paying a percent and a half on my debt, there's something to work with. All of a sudden, I'm making a 3% margin on my, you know, a net margin, and my debt's 4.5%, I mean, I'm, up, so I'm broke. I mean, I, I knew I was going broke anyway. I mean, how do you walk into bed, bath, and beyond, understand the Internet, and say, hey, this place isn't here for long. I mean, sooner or later, this goes away. But no, what did we do? We kept interest rates low to to allow Bed Bath & Beyond to do what? Restructure debt and restructure debt and restructure debt at at a very, very inexpensive cost. Let's go to the phone.
1: Here's Daphne. Dylan, good morning, Daphne.
9: Good morning, guys. Uh, Ken, I'd like, I know that you have our representatives on tomorrow morning per day. Uh, I'd like for you to ask three questions. Because these are questions that I have not been able to get answers from our representatives. Number one, why can't we follow the example of Ron DeSantis in Florida uh, concerning our schools? We are supposed to be a more conservative state than Florida. Number two, and this is a question I've been asking almost three years now, uh, who constructed Act 62, which was called Solar Choice Terrace, and went into, that required an agreement and settlement with certain clean energy advocates. Who were those people that constructed Act 62, and who were the clean energy advocates that are going to put us in the same situation that Texas has uh, been tricked into, okay? Texas now uh, power problems because of their solar concessions. Number three, on Bill Meyer the other week, uh, there was a lady on there, and I can't remember her name, that said South Carolina, as conservative as we are, are now allowing Uh, gender re-identification and surgery on four- and five-year-olds. Where is that happening? Is it true? And why are we allowing the abuse of children in South Carolina? Thank you.
0: Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. They'll be here tomorrow, you're welcome to call in during the hour. We allow, um, and they'll accept your call, but they'll answer the best they know how some of those questions. I applaud those guys for coming in um, kind of unfiltered not knowing what's coming around the bend. And I hope the voters understand that that's pretty rare. I mean, most politicians come on a show with some preconceived notion of what's going to happen. These guys have a standing invitation. They come about every Friday morning and they take it as it comes. And you folks are certainly entitled to ask complicated and difficult questions to members of the general assembly. That's their job is to, um, to inform you on what their plans are, what their intents are, why they've done certain things and why other things uh, were not being done. When you talk about DeSantis and education, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Rev accuses me. I think he's accused me of this of kind of I'm um, keeping my powder dry, not because of anything other than Ron DeSantis. And whether he runs for president or not, oh, I think that's pretty obvious. Well, I mean, it's very obvious. I mean, and
1: I'm thinking this: if he runs, you're leaning toward DeSantis. Well, I, mean, I, I versus don't know Trump.
0: that. I mean, I think a lot about it. I mean, you know, since we've been talking about education, and you know, so I think Jeff said yesterday that DeSantis took all the books out of all the libraries. Well, that's just simply not not the truth. There's a uh, there was a House bill that basically, I mean, it's parental rights in education. I mean, that's the nuts and bolts of the legislation. Um, It reinforces a parent's fundamental right to have input on decisions regarding uh, their kids' education. Um, It does prohibit certain sexual orientation classes, gender identity classes. Um, That is in the bill, no question about it. The Senate, if I'm not mistaken, I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but I think the Senate um, added a an amendment to the bill that limited the number of terms a school board member can serve at a public school in the state of Florida. But um, as part of the uh, the parental rights and education bill, I think it's, uh, I'm not reading, but I think that's what it's called. Uh, as part of that, there is the right of parents to um, audit the collection of books a teacher has in her classroom to make sure That the books aren't about sexual orientation, um, gender identity, transgenderism, you know, gender mutilation, well, you know, um, gender fluidity. Uh, I think it's a good day in America when parents are involved and have input uh, about what their kids are being um, taught or not. I mean, you know, I don't want Mike Yarrow being taught about oral sex or gender mutilation or, you know, uh, gender identity. I mean, I, you know, you may believe there's... I think it's nonsense if you're in the 8th grade or 80th grade. I mean, I think it's complete and total lunacy. But but I don't, I'm don't. i not dictator. I don't get everything my way. I mean, if I had my way, there wouldn't be any damn studying on gender mutilation or gender identity or, or transgenderism or, you know, gender fluidity. I think that's craziness. I mean, I think it's just absolute bizarre and crazy that there are sane people in America that by end... To some of those notions but once again there are people with different views in America and along with rugged individualism and personal liberties and freedoms comes the ability to be crazy and I think those people are warped in, in their you know view of mankind and you know that relation to a creator or a sovereign or a God I mean I can get real spiritual to go down down that road but but it, if DeSantis decides to run he's going to make himself the the, the government that got it done I'm the governor that got it done in Georgia. I mean, excuse me, in Florida. When it came to education, the people of Florida told me how concerned they were about parents not having enough input in how we educate our young kids. And I went out and worked with the legislature, and we got a bill introduced. We got a bill through subcommittee. We got a bill through committee, and we now allow parents to make fundamental decisions regarding their children's education in our public schools. And I just wonder how many parents out there find that an attractive priority or focus of a presidential agenda. I mean, we're talking about foreign affairs and global diplomacy and federal debt. Education seems to be something that we believe. I mean, I'm a federalist. I'm a little further to the Jefferson side than a federalist. Um, but, But we believe that those decisions are best left at the state level, at the local level. Um, and DeSantis is basically saying this. But but as president, how are we conservatives going to receive some national view on education? Because a lot of DeSantis's focus has been on education as governor of Florida. Does the federal government have a role in establishing any sort of bylaws? Well, in other words, do we need a national parental rights and education bill? I mean, historically, conservatives have said no. I mean that's the job of a state government or a local government, a local school board in particular. Um, but that's kind of Desantis's claim to fame, so to speak. So he'll be uh, he'll have to figure out a way to mesh or merge some of these priorities he's taken as governor of, uh, of Florida if he decides to run for president. Rev's exactly right. I mean if 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 it's Trump and everybody else, I'm Trump. 1,000, One thousand, one million, one billion, one trillion percent Trump if it's trump and desantis i've got to i've got to do some pondering i mean i've really got to consider who i think is best not today or tomorrow but over the next 4 8 10 12 16 years you know the birthing of a political movement is something we owe donald trump a great debt of gratitude too but the sustaining and the uh, the growing of a political movement is something that you know i think we have to make as part of our decision making We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Phones are ringing. Let's go to the call. Angela in Pamplico. Good morning.
10: Good morning. I have two things. Um, answering a few questions that were just brought up. First of all, um, the federal government has no business in our education. Absolutely none. However. Um, parental rights is the most important thing that we can do for our education system right now. And Ron DeSantis is doing that in Florida majorly. Um, And not that as a president I don't know that it would be good for him to mandate those things federally. However, as a president, he could be Like a mentor, or you know, well, he's got the bully pulpit.
0: I mean, he's got the biggest bully pulpit in the world,
10: exactly. Exactly. So, you know, maybe he can twist some arms in, in states that so they can then put parental rights. Um, we're fighting for parental rights in education tooth and nail right now um and it's just it's it's a hard fight so no why way. is that
0: angela why in a southern conservative state are we not making the progress with parental rights as they have in florida which is a less conservative state
10: i would like the answer to that myself i really don't know but you agree
0: um, with that you agree that we've yes. not made the progress in parental yes. rights in south carolina that we had that they have in yes. florida
10: yes okay. I do. We are making headway. Um We are, we're definitely making some headway, but we're, we're definitely not a, as advanced as Florida is. So we've got to work on that. We've got, we've got to fight that fight a little bit harder and we've got to get, I really honestly think that here in South Carolina, there are a lot of blind parents. A lot of parents think, Oh that's not happening in our schools that's not happening in our schools that's not happening in our schools but it's right up under their nose but they don't want to see it because they don't want to get off the couch and fight the fight
0: well and that's, they but... would
10: rather just sit behind the computer and and complain about it so i think that's one thing we've got to get more parents involved um and then the second thing I wanted to address was the the lady that called earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, um, MUSC in Charleston had a clinic that was doing gender um, transitions to, yes, four- and five-year-olds. Um, Congressman Ralph Norman and the Freedom Caucus sent them a letter and told them that they either stopped or the funding would stop and they took a week or two but they finally they closed that clinic and that just happened last month so um, but they did close that clinic because um, congressman ralph norman and the freedom caucus in south carolina got together they sent them a letter and told them that it either stopped or the funding would stop
0: Angela, that's interesting. Thank you for the call. And I want to go here for just one second. We got to take a break here, but we know that the elected officials have a responsibility and accountability to the voters, right? What do the government-funded entities have? I'm talking about MUSC. I mean, what what is MUSC's responsibility to accountability with the American? Excuse me, with the South Carolina taxpayer? I mean, it's a government-funded organization. It's kind of a hybrid. I mean, they're private money and public money. It's it's emerging. Uh, It's a publicly, I mean, it's a not-for-profit hospital. It's, um, it's, It's a government agency to some degree, but it's also a private enterprise to some degree. When Jay Jordan serves in the House of Representatives, Jay Jordan serves you, the people, the people of that district. I live in Jay's district. He is my House member. I have the right to ask Jay Jordan why he did what he did, and I think he has the responsibility to give me an answer. May not like the answer. But, but that's the accountability of a you know an elected official and the voter. What sort of accountability does MUSC owe the voter and taxpayer in our state of South Carolina? I, I don't know the answer to that question. I hardly ever ask a question uh, that I don't know the answer to because you learn that kind of the hard way. Don't ask questions you don't know the answers to. But I don't know the answer to that. I think I have with a great degree of clarity an understanding of what you know Jordan Lowe, Rick and ba, Kirby, whomever that elected official may be, and they're you know back and forth with the voters. But but some of these you know government-funded, privately run enterprises, what accountability do they owe the uh, the taxpayers of South Carolina? Take a break. Back in a minute. Welcome back. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So, can entities like NUSC owe
11: us complete transparency, even with their privately acquired funds, because of all the benefits they receive by being either a government entity, a nonprofit, or what have you, um, or maybe like even Francis Marion uh, University, because the properties they sit on, they don't pay taxes on. The vehicles they own, they don't pay taxes on their employees are entitled to state health insurance and state retirement. Even in South Carolina, even nonprofits can enroll their employees in the state retirement system. Um, but Ken, back to the children, us millennial parents have a term for uh, people like Jeff who are okay with the sexualization of children, and we call them groomers. So um, and if, as long as Jeff is okay with the book, Gender Queer, being pushed to our children that would make him a groomer. Thank you Ken
0: Thank you Jim appreciate it you know I probably didn't establish the question as clearly as I intended to let's back up a half step so Jim is arguing that M- MUSC and, a, and an institution of higher learning we talked about the Gamecocks earlier let's say University of South Carolina that they owe us complete and total disclosure and transparency I agree with that but but who has the authority to decide whether they breach that trust? That agreement, that arrangement, that deal we've made with one of those enterprises—whether it's MUSC, whether it's the University of South Carolina, whether it's Francis Marion University—when we, I mean, if, if we demand accountability and transparency, and they provide accountability and transparency, and in the reviewing of that, you know, material, you find out something's not right. Who gets to fire the coach? I mean, surely we don't want the voters of South Carolina deciding the football coach at. You know, the basketball coach at Clemson is going to be or the baseball coach at South Carolina is going to be. Um, that's the point I'm trying to make. When MUSC does things that are against the will of the citizenry of South Carolina, and we know gender mutilation is not very popular in South Carolina. It may be in California. It may be in New York, but it's not in South Carolina. What rights do we have to address it? 843 Back in a few. Last hour of the morning, someone called and, and just uh, give me some legitimate argument as to why my rationale is not right. I mean, if I'm a Republican and I want to beat the Democrat in 2024, I want to keep control of the House, I want to gain control of the Senate, and I want to win the White House at 24. Give me a legitimate reason to not wait and see what Ron DeSantis decides to do. To me, it's the most logical place to land if you're an America First Republican. Do you believe Ron DeSantis is an America First Republican? Can he be an America First Republican and rub shoulders every now and then with establishment Republicans? Of course he can. I mean, he's going to have to to get things done. It's, it's not a monarchy. It's not a dictatorship. We're not electing a king. It's still the art of governing. And I get the fact that Rev wants it this way, and Ken wants it that way, and Sandy wants it another way. We all want it our ways. But Representative Republic requires what? Consensus and majorities and, uh, you know, team building and a lot of other. Sure. I mean, you know, as much as I don't like that. I mean, if, if I've got an opinion and I dilute my opinion by 10%, I'm not as sure of my opinion. But it might be the only way to get something um, good done for the nation. The the point I'm trying to make, the illustration I'm trying to portray is, if you are a Republican who is an America firster, give me a reason to not wait and see what Ron DeSantis decides to do. DeSantis may be a paper tiger, but he may be big and bad as a governor. But, but but once in the national spotlight, I mean, he could wither. I mean, I don't know. What was it on Bobby Jindal? Remember? I mean, yeah, he looked, like he wore his, yeah looked like he wore his dad's blazer and he gave the um, the response to the Democrat State of the Union. Uh, remember? I mean, he just melted. He, he was not up for that moment. He looked like a very commanding and bright, uh, you know, had a bright future in Republican politics. And that one moment, remember, um, uh, Marco Rubio. Got cotton uh, mouth.
1: Oh, in the water. Yeah, and reached over and grabbed some water. He'll yep. always
0: be remembered. He had a moment in time to present himself as a national political figure, and then he failed. Bobby Jindal looked like he had his granddaddy's blazer on. It was three sizes too big. like David Byrne from Talking Heads is what he looked like when he stood there. I mean, they, you know, they looked like giants in Louisiana. They were in command in Florida. But they withered when those bright lights hit, and it was time to be a national political figure. Ron DeSantis has never faced that moment. So, so when the lights shine brightly, when he makes the announcement that he's a Republican candidate for president and, and the heat gets turned up about, you know, six or eight or ten notches, can he stand that? That is a very legitimate concern. But up until now, the body of work— the 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 results where the rubber meets the road. He has become a very accomplished person within the Republican Party. And I would just say this:
1: I agree. I mean, I've been impressed. I've talked. I've talked highly of Ron DeSantis ever since he kind of became known on the national scene. Um, Trump's still my first choice. I mean, he's my second choice as far as that goes. But if Trump's in it, he's my
0: first choice. But I think you would agree with me. Waiting is a very logical position to be. Sure. I mean, I've, I said, I've said it before, and I, I get what you're saying. If, if Trump's not your first well, choice. But he, you know, you and Trump think I'm being disloyal. I mean, you, you do. I mean, he, 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 that doesn't hurt my feelings. I mean, that doesn't bother me a bit in the world. I get it. I mean, I understand if you a 100% full-throttle Trump supporter and the guy that says he's an America first, but he won't sign up for Trump now because he wants to wait to see what this other guy does, you know, this watered-down version of America first. <laughs> I mean, I get that. that and, that's, I don't know that DeSantis is watered down. Well, I mean, we don't know that. Right. We don't know. We don't have any idea what Ron DeSantis will do when that time comes. But but I think he deserves serious consideration. And if you're an America first Republican and you say, look, I've been a Trumpster my entire since he showed up on the scene, we have been there. But I'm going to wait for a week or two or three to see what DeSantis Decides to do. I don't think that's an insult to Trump. I think it's a pretty logical political posture to hold. Let's go to the phone. Neil and Sumter, listening to
1: WDXY. Morning, Neil.
3: Hey, morning, guys. First of all, for me personally, heck yeah, I'm waiting, but uh, I'm not in you know as deep into the politics here as, as you are. Uh, but my first question is, um, what's uh, DeSantis's wife's health? Because wasn't she in a cancer battle?
0: She does. I think it's um, I think it's better yeah. than they even expected it to be.
3: But but you know that's that's a huge factor you know that's got to be weighing on him um you know they've got young kids and and you know i i think we can't discount that the effect of that on his decision but my my thing uh, kind of that i want to touch on is i think we as south carolina carolinians need to i shouldn't say temperate but my question is can trump win arizona pennsylvania wisconsin nevada if he can't Then no, I'm not voting for him. Because it doesn't do me any good to follow my sword and go, oh yeah, Trump, 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 any more than it would to say, you know, Rand Paul. I mean, Rand Paul would be my first choice for president for anybody on the national scene by far. I would want Rand Paul and I would want clones of Rand Paul in every secretarial position and every deputy secretarial (laughs) position throughout the government. Because that's the only way we're gonna get this thing fixed. But I know it's not gonna happen. So if Trump can't win and you know, every year Republican voters die and Democrat voters become eligible because we all know what's going on with our youngsters. So the numbers aren't in our favor, you know, until we get this thing reversed, because every day, you know, more Democrats become eligible to vote when they turn 18 than Republicans. And, and the old old Republicans are dying. You know, I, I think those numbers are not in our favor right now.
6: So yeah, there, there's up. some
3: can, can, can Trump win states he didn't win last time. Can he win Georgia? You know, if he can't win it, then there's no reason to even have the discussion. Don't vote for him here in South Carolina. Don't, don't
0: pop him up. Well said. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate that. That's kind of an interesting comment and commentary. I mean, Rev knows how I feel about Rand Paul. The reason Rand Paul needs to be seriously considered as a voice in our political world far more than he does. He's a quirky dude. He's kind of, a, um, kind of an oddity about him. He's not, what, what am I trying to say, Rev? He's not a, a marketable product. I mean, he's not. He's hard to package. I mean, if you're a consultant and you and you sit down with Rand Paul, you 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 realize, okay, he's a smart guy. He's a very capable guy. But how do I get this catalog is that image and yeah, the likability I mean, you talk he's about. He's just got a certain weirdness about him. It's a quirkiness. I mean, he's been on our radio show before. Mm-hmm. I mean, when he was running for president, they weren't raising money. He was looking for opportunities. You know, um, he was soliciting opportunities to get his name out. And, and I've said on the air many, many, many times. The biggest loser in Donald Trump becoming a candidate for president was Rand Paul. Rand Paul was going to be the outsider. The one thing that Rand Paul does that nobody else, I want to pound the desk when I say this, nobody else will do this. Rand Paul will say, we're not serious until we put the defense budget on the table, until we put Medicare on the table. Until we put Social Security on the table, until we put Medicaid on the table, stop with the nonsense. Stop with the silliness. When we start talking about debt reduction and getting our spending under control, but but Kevin McCarthy says and Donald Trump says and Ron DeSantis will probably say, but we're not touching entitlements and we're not touching that defense budget. You're being dishonest with the American people. There's no way to address the debt in any significant way without dealing with those line items. Now we've already got ourselves in a mess with, or a quandary, I wanna be serious here, not a mess, a quandary, with our um, with our service and debt, you know, with our interest only. I mean, it's gonna be north of a trillion dollars. Once some of these um, notes mature, we refinance debt at the new raised rates, uh, which are normal rates. I mean, We're not living in a high interest rate environment. <laughs> we're kind of getting close to historical averages. I read yesterday from one of the um, propagandists that we're living in this inflated interest rate environment. No, we're still below historical averages when it comes to thirty year notes and five year car loans and what used to be four- year car loans now it's ten year car loans. Um, but Rand Paul's the only guy that that will 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 put his political fate and future at risk by saying something serious. Um, Rand Paul, Neil, reflects my political opinions, probably more than anybody on the scene. I just deemed him unelectable. I mean I didn't waste a vote on Rand Paul because I didn't think there was any way in the world Rand Paul could get elected president. But he put issues on the table that I think needed to be front and center. And I think in the grand scheme of things, Rand Paul's probably the most noble man in Washington. Because Rand Paul's willing to say that we gotta cut defense, we gotta cut Social Security, we gotta cut Medicare, and we gotta cut Medicaid. He's the only honest broker When it comes to debt reduction, McCarthy's got to be speaker. I get that. He's got to protect people in certain districts. I get all that. You don't like it. You've never been in politics. I mean, holding that office, you got to kind of balance and counterbalance and bob and weave and ebb and flow. Um, I know you don't like it. I know you wish it weren't the case, but we're not a dictatorship. And Kevin McCarthy, as speaker, has a lot of um, rambling and roaming responsibilities that don't always align with his political you know, philosophy or view. Um, Can Trump win in the states he lost in 2020? I mean, isn't that the the essential question? I mean, would you rather have Trump win the primary and and lose the general? Here's an interesting question, because I've thought of this. We got this, um, this linear graph. And on one end is Chris Christie. On one end is Donald Trump. Let me go further than that. On one end is John Kasich. On the other end is Donald Trump. There are a lot of other considered candidates in between. Nikki Haley's probably the establishment candidate that they believe they can trick you into voting for. I mean, they can convince you that she is a reformer, She did, she's a disruptor, but, but she's an establishment Republican. I mean, she had a choice to be one or the other, and she chose the establishment route. I get it. I mean, there was a lot of money to be made, a lot of personal fortune and fame to be gained by her going that way. I'm not sure I wouldn't have done the exact same Nikki Haley did. But but there's a price to be paid with voters when you decide to declare a path that is really in the minority of the party right now. So so you got Trump and you got Kasich. you got Haley somewhere in here. How far down that linear graph are you willing to go to lose to a Democrat? In other words, would you rather have John Kasich as your president than Joe Biden? I'm not sure. I mean, I understand the R&D. I get that. I know what Kasich says, and, and you know, he'll argue about what he did in Ohio. I get that. But John Kasich's no different than Joe Biden as a president. Right. I mean, he's going to be an establishment-oriented. Everything about D.C. is going to continue as this continues. So who in the Republican field do we believe— creates contrast with Washington. We know Trump does, but there's no doubt about that. We think DeSantis does. We're not sure. And and I've seen some postings of him, you know, rubbing shoulders with, you know, elite Republicans and uh, uh, what's his name, the guy that spoke Mandarin on the debate stage, uh, John Huntsman. I mean, I saw a picture the other day of Huntsman and DeSantis together, and the tweet was like, you know, well, I mean, this is who we always were worried he may be. Well, I mean, you, you bump into, the, in, in that circle, you're going to run into people that you run into. And you're going to have, you know, an, an, an opportunity to be photographed with someone. And you know not Twitter is, and some of the social media and media in general. So so here's the question I'm asking You want Trump, worse than anything in the world, to get reelected. You know, you could deal with Osan. I mean, not DeSantis. You wouldn't be disappointed in Ron DeSantis not at, at all. all. I think I'd be, you'd very be a happy. little concerned with Nikki. You'd be a little more concerned with Pompeo. Mm -hmm. You'd be a little more concerned with Chris Christie. You'd be deeply concerned with a John Kasich or a John Huntsman or someone like that. See, the only person on this side of the 50, on the linear graph to me, is Ron DeSantis and Rand Paul. Now, Now, you've got some of these minor candidates like Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance. I mean, we think they're on the right side of the 50, but we don't know. I mean, we don't we don't know what JD Vance will do eventually as a senator from Ohio. We think he'll be somewhat of a um an intellectual underpinning to the America First movement. We thought that about Blake Masters, but but with Nikki, you know what you got. I mean, you you got kind of a hybrid. You got a lady who will profess to believe in the agenda of America First, but but the lady who kind of you know took the alternate route and said, look that there's a lot of fame and fortune if I go this way. And she went that way. But I think Nikki Haley, I don't think this, I'm pretty sure I know this. Nikki, I mean, the the, the establishment world order decided that Nikki Haley was the most establishment candidate that they could portray as a reformer and disruptor in the kind of the ilk of a, an America first or Donald Trump. That's what I believe. Now, which side of the 50 is that on? To me, it's on the wrong side of the 50. But it's not Chris Christie. It's not John Kasich. There will be some voters in America that give Nikki Haley a chance to prove whether or not she's one or the other. Um, To Neil's point, is it more likely that Nikki Haley wins Arizona, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Virginia, North Carolina, Nevada, than it is... Ron DeSantis, we know the likelihood of her winning in those places is better than Trump, don't we? I mean, don't we kind of know that, I mean, if they can market her as tolerable for the establishment, tolerable for the America Firster, I mean, she would be the quintessential hybrid model of either or. I mean, I think that flies in Arizona. I think that flies in Pennsylvania. I think that flies in Georgia. But but what do you get what what change in disruption do you get I mean 21% of Americans believe the government is the biggest problem in America today It's not inflation inflation's a big problem it's not immigration's a big problem it's not crime big problem it's not race relations and racism it's not poverty and hunger and homelessness as as we've talked about um, ethical moral family decline all of those resonate all of those score on the chart but People believe the government is the biggest problem. So if you believe the government is the biggest problem, you're more inclined to vote for somebody who symbolizes or represents a resistance to the government you believe is that big problem. That's the intrigue of Trump. I mean, that's that's, that's what everybody, you may not think it. You, you may say to yourself, I love Trump's policies. And I love that he tells it like it is. No, subconsciously, you love Trump because you think He's a disruptive force to that government that you've come to not believe in, not trust, not, not think has your best interest at heart. Where does Nikki Haley land there? Where does Ron DeSantis land there? See, the, the, the most proven commodity to me, and I go back to Neil's point, is, is, um, is, is Rand Paul. I mean, nobody believes Rand Paul goes along and gets along. But, but once again, Rand Paul is not an electable figure in a 50-state campaign. He's too quirky, too odd, too different, but but probably the most serious thought leader on our side of the dial. 843 Take a break. Back in just a few. 843 Our number, someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Sam and
1: Cross Hill. Good morning, Sam. You're on the air.
0: Hey, good morning, fellas. How are you all doing this morning? Good morning.
12: How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I don't know if you fellas uh, happened to catch Tucker last night. But I'm firmly convinced Tucker signs in and streams your show uh, in the morning, because last night he really did a number on Lindsey Graham questioning uh, why in the world would Trump make him uh you know, I guess chair of the South Carolina campaign, co-chair, whatever, because oftentimes Lindsey Graham pulls against the America first uh, movement. It was a very interesting uh, piece. And he also uh, got on to Nikki Haley too, and I believe he was saying pretty much the same thing that you were talking to, about this morning, Ken, about about Nikki Haley, that she is an establishment Republican, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. So you, you're right on, you're right on target. And uh, I hadn't heard anybody mention uh, Tucker uh, and Lindsey Graham's piece last night, uh, but uh, anyway, just want to make you guys aware of it. Enjoy Thank you, sir. Show. Well,
0: I appreciate that. Very, very kind of you to say that um tucker is one of the leading voices in the america verse movement um tucker's a guy that, that i think has a i mean if tucker decided to leave the air and run for office he has a great future a bright future tucker probably is more consequential where he is with a nightly audience somewhere in excess of two and a half million at times during the hotly contested political season it's five million but but he's a loud voice for america first and when he challenges lindsey graham I think it's a good day for America first. When he challenges Nikki Haley, I think it's a good day for America first. And none of this is personal with me. I mean, I've expressed this. Why would Lindsey Graham care what a a podunk radio show host at a podunk town has to say about him or not, or Nikki for that matter? Um, But but I do think I I understand both of their motivations. And I understand – I know what I'm suspicious of when it comes to them. And I think I can try and convince you these are things – that I'd be suspicious of as well. I watched President Trump's speech
1: when he was in Columbia at the State House on Saturday and he meant when he was mentioning his team and he mentioned Senator Graham he looked at him and said now there are some things of course uh, I don't necessarily agree with
0: Senator Graham on but I'm happy to have his support. I don't know what they do agree on I mean when, when Donald Trump says there are certain things we disagree on Lindsay has a body of work I mean there's a long history of Lindsay making political judgments and decisions, and I don't know any that have ever reflected America first in general. I just don't. I mean, Lindsey has every right to be anti-America first. He has every right to be hawkish. He has every right as a U.S. senator to not be that concerned about the debt. I I just, when I look at Lindsey, I I see globalism. I see intervention. Um, And I like Lindsey. But between us, you know, between me and the listeners, Lindsey was very kind to me in my political life. One meeting in particular, I don't want to go into detail. I mean, I was getting the hell beat out of me. And Lindsey reached out to me and basically said, keep your head up. I mean, you know, um, there's an old story, Rev, about presidents. When a president leaves the White House, he meets with the incoming president and they have a a five-minute conversation. I mean, the, the, the teams talk a lot to one another about transitioning and things that are going on, top secret information and foreign policy and blah, 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 blah. But there's kind of a, there's a meeting of one leaving and one coming in. And the story is that LBJ and Nixon, it would have been Nixon, right? LBJ mm-hmm. and, then, yeah, when, when LBJ left the White House and Nixon comes in, um, they asked LBJ, or excuse me, President Nixon asked former President LBJ, it was after the inauguration, he said, do you have any particular advice? He said, Mr. President, at times, you're going to be like a mule in a hailstorm. You just stand there and get the crap beat out of you. You didn't say crap, but anybody knew LBJ knew that he had a very colorful vocabulary. Since we've learned. You, you stand there then. and get the crap beat out of you. Um, when I was getting the crap beat out of me and having to stand there and accept the political punishment, that was self-inflicted. I'm not blaming anybody for it. Lindsay was very kind to me, very sympathetic to me, and, and reached out to me more than one time. And, you know, kind of keep your head up. Keep digging. Um, don't let all that, you know, sound and clutter cloud things that matter. He's talking about family and job and all these other sorts of things. So there's always kind of a place in my heart and, and a degree of respect I have for someone who seemed to care about me when I was in harm's way. But, but when he goes down the, the, the damn road of military spending and, and American imperialism and Lindsay would never admit that it's American imperialism. That's what it is. I mean, it's become military welfare and I think somebody in the Republican Party has to address it as, as, as a matter of, of debate. We've got to debate while we're spending. I mean, i got it written down here. Four percent of our GDP on military. When every other developed nation in the world is less than two percent. I mean, our, our military budget will soon be over a trillion dollars. We're going to have four line items in our budget, in our federal outlays, that exceed a trillion dollars. Our Medicare spending is going to exceed a trillion. Our Social Security spending Will exceed a trillion. Our military spending will exceed a trillion, and our debt, our uh, service to debt is going to exceed a trillion dollars. That's unheard of, guys. And if you're a Republican and you aren't willing to put Medicare, Social Security, defense on the table, then you're not a serious Republican. We're looking at $31.5, $32 trillion in federal debt. We can't keep going down this road. And Lindsey keeps saying things. That, that I just don't think are in our nation's best interest, it doesn't mean I disagree with Lindsey on everything. But, but the one thing Donald Trump pledged and kept his word on, he's not going to get us involved in wars where we don't have any business being involved in wars. So, so how does someone who has a, a pretty long history of being about as hawkish and pro-military intervention, and there's a difference in being pro-military, pro-soldier, pro-war machine, and pro-intervention. And I think Lindsey's demonstrated a willingness to intervene in places that aren't in our best interest. I posted on National Review yesterday. I've got this good, uh, Revnos, knows the secret I have. So I, I convinced the radio station to become a subscriber to National Review because I needed it. I mean, I really needed to do some of the material. The National Review is still the home of neoconservatism. I mean, it really is. When I post a comment it doesn't go as my name. It goes as Dave Baker's name <laughs> because Dave Baker paid the subscription and got reimbursed by the radio station. So I, you know, Wall Street Journal's my name. So I'm like, I'm careful here. I don't want anybody Googling me and saying it. I don't want them scandalous former politicians uh, who's listening to what you have to say. So th- there was an article last <laughs> and night. And by the that, way, thanks for, for letting, thanks for that. There was an article in the National Review. That basically defended everything about our involvement in Ukraine. It's wordy, it's long, it's extensive, it's it's well-written, well, uh, well written, it's well-vetted. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's well-informed. I mean, it makes a lot of sense if you believe in neoconservatism. Dave Baker commented, <laughs> neoconservatism is dying. That's better than American young men and women. Whoa. That's how I feel. The, the, the litmus test for me. Good, good for well, me. I mean, here's the difference. And I don't want to be personal with Lindsey. Lindsey doesn't have any kids. I got three. I don't want my kid blown up in Ukraine. I'm sorry, I don't. I, I just, I, I can't come to grips with that. I, I have, I have a love of this country. I'd give my life for this country, but it would have to be for a reason that I believe made America better. And and we've tried to paint, I mean, the, the, the lady from Russia, the lady, lady from Belarus, I mean, she explained a lot of this in a way that we don't get it explained to us very often, Reb, because once again, the, the, the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower gave us fair warning of have propagandized not just to the American people, but the American body politic. And we bought in it to the tune of nearly a trillion dollars a year in military spending. So, so yes, I do believe that Republicans need to be candid with themselves and admit that we've been guilty of American imperialism trying to export democracy in places that just don't perceive democracy the way we do we don't have the right to do that Eastern Europe is different the Middle East is different Asia is different there are cultural phenomenons societal issues that, that are part of who they are and have been long before we became a nation but Lindsay believes it's our job to basically thrust our views and values upon the rest of the world, whether they want them or not, and that's a dangerous, dangerous mindset. And once again, my litmus test has become: Would I be? I mean, obviously, you're sad and regretful, and and you're you're dealing with heartache and pain and anguish and uh, you know um, grief. But 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 I think people whose family member dies in a foreign conflict accept that that is a part of the deal that could. Potentially happen. I just think we don't think as long and hard about American men and women dying in certain places, while we question whether they genuinely have American interest at heart. Let's go to the phone.
1: Here is Jamie. Good morning,
13: Ken. Good morning. Uh, I'm glad your last caller uh, mentioned uh, Tucker. I watched it last night, and um, I got up this morning at 4 o'clock. I hit the ground running, and I almost texted you about Tucker for you to look at it. But then I thought, eh, he doesn't want to see my text first thing in the morning, so I decided I'm not to send it. But anyway, you, sh- you need to look at it. He eviscerated Lindsey, and I-, I watched it twice, and I plan to watch it again today. <clears throat> but also, um, Dan Bongino uh I, I, I try to get i try to listen to him when i can he was on fire yesterday about the ukraine uh situation with biden and the guy that was handling the bank affairs for the biden um, uh, von was talking about him on the radio and about the second hour he came on he said that guy i've been talking about he just got arrested by the ukrainian officials so there's a big cover up going on um about the Ukraine thing in Dubai. Anyway, those were two things I was very interested in in letting you know I thought about. It.
0: Thank you, Jam. Appreciate that. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Chris and Bishopville. Hello, Chris. You're on the air.
14: Hey, Ken. Hey, gentlemen. Morning. So big thing, you know, that I'll say about that, you know, former former military, um, Man, they they continue to send, you know, assets that we have that are in service to aid Ukraine. You know, that that certainly is not helping us because we're having to develop technologies that now have that, you know, essentially people are being exposed to uh, and spend more money there. I mean, in Afghanistan, we left millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment that one may need a tire, but the other one may need a mirror. And instead of taking the mirror off of this unit over here and putting it on this and make this unit functional, no, we're just going to take that unit out of service because it costs more money to send the parts to fix it overseas than it does for us to build a new one. So they got to do a better job there because I feel like our overall military readiness is suffering, not to mention, you know, with all this, you know, gender stuff going on and vaccines and all this stuff in the military, like, Anybody looked at uh, what our manning looks like currently? The Army's only at like 40% staffed. We're not in a good spot. Thanks, guys.
0: And I'm not naive. I understand that, that political motivations will always infiltrate themselves into the political, excuse me, into the military. I understand the Pentagon's political. I understand some of, the, um, some of the ranking hierarchy in our U.S. military are political. I get that. I mean, I understand. And I understand foreign policy is complicated. I get that. I want a war machine. I want every dollar we spend spent on winning wars that have American interest as the kind of the epicenter. That's what I want. Is that 500 billion a year? Is it 300 billion a year? I mean, China spends three and a half billion dollars a year. We spend about nine, excuse me, uh, about three and a half. What am I saying? China spends 310 billion dollars a year in military spending, which is about one and a half percent of their GDP. We're spending about 35 to 4% of our GDP, which is about, now it's close to a trillion dollars. I mean, it's pushing $900 billion now. Are we building a war machine, or are we trying to export democracy and regime change? We know what we're doing. I mean, we're building a war machine. There is no doubt about it. But we're also playing politics. And I just don't understand it. When Lindsey tries to defend, I mean, let's let's use this as an example, Revan. I know we're getting behind but but let's for argument's sake say that that Ukraine or excuse me Russia is a legitimate threat to American safety and security. Why not send everything we have to defeat Russia now? I mean, if we made a decision that Russia is a genuine and legitimate threat to the safety and well-being of Americans at home and abroad, why are we toying around with a little bit of this, a little bit of? Let's go, just I mean, do whatever it takes to win the war. I mean, if we're investing a trillion dollars a year. To build the greatest war machine in the history of mankind, why don't we win wars? Aren't
1: you talking about potentially World War I mean, Three? But, but
0: okay, but, but why if we're going to if we're going to eventually lead to World War III, why not try to win it? I mean, why do we allow the the, the military apparatus to be so heavily influenced by politics? I'm not naive, guys. I understand it's real damn complicated. But there are motivations that are very insincere when it comes to politicians pontificating why we need to involve or intervene and why not. 843-661-0937 back in a minute. 843 got about three or four or five minutes before we get out of here.
1: Interesting what you said before the break talking about Lindsey Graham and his hawkish uh, approach. Uh, he doesn't have kids. And you said that if you were in that position making decisions, that the fact you do have kids would, would probably influence that
0: decision. I'd rather a parent decide where to send human life, American young men and women, into harm's way. I don't think not being a parent should disqualify you, and I respect Lindsay. I mean that sincerely. I respect a lot of what Lindsay stands for, believes in, and the service he's provided to South Carolina. I think he's wrong on, on intervention. I think he's wrong, wrong on the omnibus there, there are a lot of it. But, but look, Lindsay does what Lindsay does and we do what we do and you do what you do. And every now and then those, those priorities collide with one another. So when Lindsay says that this is in our best interest, it's indisputable. We got to send tanks and, and we might end up sending men and women. I think as a non-parent, it, it's different. I didn't say it's wrong or I didn't say it's right. It's different i mean if you're the i got three kids my daughter would be of draft age but she's a daughter you know what i mean if we had selective services and the draft and things got so out of hand we had third world war and putin had engaged in nuclear you know what i mean some of these limited nuclear actions or reactions um i mean you, you got a kid and and if you don't have that kid you don't take into account as much as you do if you if you do have a kid. And, and and I'm not I'm not saying Lindsay doesn't deserve to make those decisions because he's not a parent. I just think if you're a parent, you look at that sort of decision fundamentally different. You know what it's like to have a nineteen year old kid. The last thing you want is that nineteen year old kid being in harm's way in a place that may or may not have American interest as a priority. Let's go to the phone. Barry and Shaw. Morning.
15: Hey, morning, guys. Hey, Ken, uh, great topic. Uh, Remember back in 2017, uh, McCain and Lindsey were caught on the front lines in Ukraine trying to get Ukraine troops in Donbass region trying to attack Russia before Trump took over. And uh, they got caught on hot mic up front with cameras uh, trying to get Ukraine to attack Russia. So, I mean, this is what he does. This is what he does because he's owned by the CIA and he's owned by uh, the military complex. So this is what he does. So what we have to do, you you said he's going to do what he does. Well, we have to call his tail every single day. And I got the number. I'm going to put it out because this audience right here does what they do. So it's 202-224-5972. And I want you to give that intern that call, that. That is, she's very nice. That answers, and you leave your name and number, and you tell them what you you think every single day, and they won't call you back. But you you put down where you from, and, and and how you feel about it. Because I'm a, I light his tail up daily. So uh, if we can get everybody to do that every day, then we might get his sorry tail out of there. Y'all have a great day.
0: Thank you, Barry. Well, I mean, I think Lindsay believes in that worldview. I mean, I think Lindsay genuinely believes. That, that Ukraine and Russia, the border between Ukraine and Russia, could eventually lead to uh, communist creep, socialist creep, expansion of Russia. Out of that comes a Europe dominated and threatened by a former Soviet Union, a global superpower with nuclear armaments. I mean, I'm not saying I think Lyssen just does it for the hell of it. I mean, I think he thinks through this. And I think he believes that he's doing genuinely what is in America's best interest. Now, now is he paid is he bought and sold by the military-industrial complex? I'm not in Washington. I don't have any idea what sort of relationship some of those neocons have with the um, with the enterprise of war, the enterprise uh, of American military. I've told Rev, I mean, we're launching a, a podcast the 20th of February. I mean, that is our launch date. It's no stoplights with Kennard. Rev has asked me, how many guests do you want? Occasionally, probably every other podcast. Who do you want your first guest to be? Well, I if mean, it can't be Elon Musk, I want it to be Lindsey Graham. I don't think Lindsey believes I try to ambush him. I don't think Lindsey believes I try to gotcha interview him. But I want Lindsey to explain the, the hawkish perspective he has on American foreign policy juxtaposed to recent examples of things we were told that didn't come to fruition. I mean, the American people have been lied to about foreign affairs and foreign intervention since Vietnam. Give me an example since Vietnam that went as our political leaders said it would go. Crickets. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.